everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. Hello, I'm Sean Edry. You should be smiling. No, I shouldn't. I came back from England, back to this hellhole of a desert country, and I'm angry. Well, everything looks worse once you come from England to pretty much anywhere else. It's... This is a comic book podcast, not a Tom on Vacation podcast. (laughs) Not anymore. Uh, Brought to you by the fine folks at Seekworks, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews, previews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, Ian Daw has a review of Prometheus Eternal. This is a collection of short comics that reinterpret the Greek myth. Grant Morrison is in it, and other people who are not Grant Morrison. But, you know. If you like these articles, if you like this podcast, you should give us some money. Yes, support Smart Criticism in Comics. We are on Patreon. So, shall we go on to the news? Happy Thanksgiving. That's new. Uh, be careful on Black Friday, people. Remember, no Black Friday bundaroo is worth your life. Well, some of them. I don't know, like... The complete collection of Alan Moore before he went crazy, maybe? I don't know. But I wouldn't run That's somebody 10, over That's 10,000 pages. I could go for that, but I wouldn't, it's like, I wouldn't use the omnibus to actually kill someone with it, which happens on Black Friday, but we are not celebrating Thanksgiving. We are, however, gloating with much schadenfreude, I think, this episode. I'd like okay. to start with a bit of news that just made me happy, and I'll, I'll explain. It, it, this has to be a very confusing time for Batman fans. It all started when Frank Miller gave an interview confirming what I think some of us already suspected when the solicitations and the news items came out, but still came as sort of a surprise to me. Miller has made minimal creative contributions to Dark Knight 3, The Master Race, which we'll be reviewing this episode, also known as Mein Batf. And apparently what he has said is that most of this series is Azzarello. It's his script, it's his dialogue, he, Miller himself contributed apparently just a skeleton of a, of the story, and most of it is Azarello. So, Miller, what's your contribution? Well, I thought that Batman should be in this story. Mm. Brilliant! Well, apparently, Miller had something else to add, because he has announced that he will be doing Dark Knight 4. Now, there- Forever? Four more years? <sighs> It'll feel that way when it comes out, I'm sure. But four score and Dark Knights ago, woo! Ah, uh, great. So many. Millers. I mean, really, when you think about it, after the Master Race, where can you go in terms of titles? No, bigger question: How many number fours in a long-running series have ever been good? Rocky Die- Four, Di- Rocky Four, Die Hard Four, Indiana Jones Four. Was there a Teenage Star Mutant Wars- Ninja Turtles Four? Star Wars 4, it's, the odds are against it. Well, hang on. Are you calling Star Wars 4 the first prequel or yes. the first movie? The fourth one coming out. Oh, oh boy. Well, I mean, Miller, Jar Jar Binks, they sort of look alike these days, so. Okay, well, what I wanted to point out is there are a couple of issues here. First of all, DC basically committed false advertising here because when they announced Dark Knight 3, it was, you know, Miller's return to Dark Knight 3, and now, according to Miller himself, he had pretty much nothing to do with it. But, at the same time, the fact that he's doing Dark Knight 4 means that DC have green-lighted Dark Knight 4. So whatever it well, is... Well, he says he wants to do it. I assume it will be based on the sales of Dark Knight 3, but we know Dark Knight 3 will sell yeah. tons and tons and tons That's of not going to come as a surprise. They could have published 20 blank pages... 
And the first issue would still, I say, break the 100,000 easily. Because they marketed it as Miller's Return. Yeah. It seems strange that they would basically come out and admit that this is all Azarello because I don't know if Azarello would have sold as much if it were Well, how much did Azarello's before Watchmen sold? Because that's but a that similar... was still Watchmen. Well, it's a, a prequel to Watchmen, and this is a sequel to The Dark Knight. So mm. we have a, a similar case of Brian Azarello writing something which is tangentially related to an original creation, which is considered a a closed creation, no sequel needed originally, and b one of the biggest critically acclaimed massive hits in comic book history. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as I remember, before Watchmen sold. Decently, because it has a massive push behind it, and it had the public interest, even if half of the people interested thought, ooh, this is going to be an interesting car crash. Yeah, it was rubbernecking. Um, but it sold well enough. And, and it had decent creative teams, all things considered. I mean, half and half. Darwin Cook, you had a lot of interesting people. And then you had JMS and Len Wynn. Yeah. Who could have foreseen that they would have dropped the ball? Well, it's <laughs> it's interesting to me, because before Watchmen basically disappeared from the shelves... I don't see it discussed. I don't see it reprinted. I assume it's out there and maybe people buy it, but I don't think anybody's looking for it. And I don't think any store, any direct retailer is like, oh, you liked Watchmen. Yeah. Well, now buy these. It's just. I think DC really believed that they could elevate before Watchmen to the level of Watchmen itself but, as a collected edition. But at the same time, the issues sold enough for them to see a profit at, I don't know, that quarter. Sure, but not so, the profit they wanted, I think. Well, it's a profit, and DC is so desperate for a profit <laughs> that I think they will do anything. And if Miller wouldn't have done that, if Miller wouldn't announce, well, Dark Knight 4, now with more Miller in it, I think we would see even more desperate moves, because at some point they're going to say, well, we had a Sandman sequel, but we can do more, right? And eventually even the Neil guy, or, I don't know, Invisibles 2, Electric Boogaloo. It's a question of of respect for the creator, I think. I don't think that DC respects Frank Miller in the same way that they would respect, say, Grant Morrison or Neil Gaiman in terms of, we are just going to put out these things. Well, as a corporate entity, they respect nothing. Now, they want to keep good relations with Gaiman because he's Gaiman. They want to keep good relations with uh, Grant Morrison because he's still right for them stuff. He is, right? He's still Multiversity 2. Right. Will come out someday. But for instance... For Miller, like, what would be the consequences if they alienated him? He's not writing anything for them other than Dark Knight 4, apparently. So, uh, they, you know, he's the, someone that they can afford But, but I do wonder off. what else they can use In fact, commercially that, from their big... That's actually a lot hits. like Alan Moore when you think about it, right? Like, they have nothing to lose by pissing him off because yeah. he doesn't do anything for Well, them. I guess Kingdom Come, but they already had a sequel, right? The Kingdom... Yeah. Which nobody remembers. Nobody remembers, nobody cares. Either. I guess Garth Ennis is not in DC anymore, so they can do Preacher 2. They they have the TV show coming out. Because but, they did it with Lucifer. Right. right. Well, they're, they're going to do it with Luthi- Lucifer. And Mike Carey isn't writing for DC either, as far as I know. Now, no, that no. is. Yeah. So would they do a Preacher? Well, they did All-Star Section 8, which was, I think... Recently, yeah, but it was a miniseries. He's not And it was at, Ennis. Yeah, but he's not at DC. He's a freelancer now, and most of his work comes through hmm. Dynamite right now, I think. He's doing Battlefields and Train Cold Love and stuff like that. War right. Stories. Uh, uh, sorry, War Stories is from Avatar. So they can't... Aff- it's the question of, we want to make money, we don't care to prostitute some of our biggest icons doing so... 
Unless can, it pisses them yeah, off. Who can we afford to piss off? Exactly. So and Miller, get, for all that his legacy used to speak for itself, well, is now not it a person. Se- well, it doesn't piss Miller off. He just doesn't seem to really care. He's like, oh yeah, he, Brian Azarello's doing his thing and I'm going to do my thing. Probably going to steamroll all over him. That must have been the most confusing emotional moment for Batman fans because you hear that Miller isn't involved in Dark Knight 3 and I'm imagining them like the Ewoks at the end of Return of the Jedi singing Yub Yub, throwing up Firewall. And then in the same interview, like two minutes later, he's like, but I'll be doing Dark Knight 4. Silence, crickets, chirping, you know, just, my God. (laughs) Um, And now, ironically, like, Dark Knight 4 is the book that I want to read. Because everything that we expect from a modern-day Miller book is not going to be in this book. We'll we'll get to that in a bit. Well, some of it is, again, when we'll get to the review. Uh, Iron Fist news. Iron Fist news. Yeah. So, it's a bit confusing because hmm. they keep you know, bumping it up and down and what's going to be. But apparently the news is out and there's going to be an Iron Fist TV show. That's it. Who said that? I don't know. Jeff Loeb or someone. The word is confirmed. Iron Fist is going to be a TV show. It's done. I mean, look, I have had very conflicting emotions about this whole thing because ever since they first announced that there was this power struggle between Kevin Feige and Perlmutter, Based on the quality of the Netflix show so far, my first thought has been get your stinking hands off these series, leave them alone, let them play out, they're working perfectly. Daredevil foreshadowed Iron Fist in some very specific ways. So for them to start saying, well, maybe Iron Fist is going to be a movie, maybe they'll do The Punisher instead, maybe... This is how creators end up sabotaging their works, right? When they start getting overcomplicated with all the politics and moving things around, Marvel have already taken a lot of heat for delaying Captain Marvel twice. It's just leave it alone. Stop messing with it. Iron Fist is a TV show. It's a movie. Next, we're going to find out it's a video game. Then it's going to be, I don't even know. like what's. It's an opera. It's an opera. Iron Fist, the opera, coming soon to a theater near you. I don't even know anymore. There's no casting for Iron Fist. There's, like, nothing has been said. The only thing that Joe Quesada said, and this was actually sort of a clickbait situation, he said, there will be news. People interpreted that as him saying that he was denying the rumors, but that's not a denial, right? We're going to talk about it soon. Oh, wait, 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 wait. More news. Mm. Right now on Google Alert, Iron Fist is now a belay. That makes sense. I'd watch the Iron Fist ballet. I can't even say it with a straight face. Uh, oh, hang on. I just got a Google alert. Iron Fist is now a 4D cinematic experience. So you will actually be kicked in the face while you're watching it. Good for them. Uh, just leave the Netflix shows alone, guys. They they have been really good so far. And don't mess with a sure thing. You know? Well, Jessica Jones came out. Yes, it did. You have watched most of it. I'm halfway through. I have watched some of it. Yes. So we can talk about it without spoiling anything because we have not... No spoilers, but I will say that from my perspective, it's better than Daredevil. Hmm. And I thought Daredevil was really good. Like, I did not have any substantial criticisms of that show, but Jessica Jones surprised me in a lot of ways. First of all, the casting... I knew Kristen Ritter mostly from a bit role that she played on Veronica Mars. I did not think she could pull this off. She really, really does. Mike Coulter is fantastic as Luke Cage. 
the they up the references a little bit. You 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 wouldn't have noticed this if you're only you know two or three episodes in, but they've named certain characters that had me like sit up in my seat and say, "Did she just say that Squirrel name?" Squirrel Girl is out there. I'm not going to confirm oh. or deny, but there's a reference there in episode I think five or six when when Luke tr- wants to hire Jessica for a job, and she refers him to someone, and it's like, "Who who did she just say?" I'd so, say, if I have a criticism, it's a bit grim. I mean, two episodes oh, yeah. in, and it's wrestling stuff, because they start right ahead with Jessica Jones as a survivor of a very major trauma, and the mm. uh, rape thing is played as big as it can. Which She's we like, knew we knew that that would happen. Yeah, when... but in the comic, it, it took its time explaining what was wrong with her, what happened mm. to her. And in the TV show, it's basically, from the start, this... Woman is in terrible pain. And she, I actually and have she, something to say about that. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you what the thing is. Once Jessica Jones started airing, well, I say started airing, it all came out in the same day, so I'm just like processing yeah. it. I went back and I read Alias again. And I realized that what the show was doing was fixing something that Bendis didn't quite pull off. For all that Alias is considered one of his best works, and it really is when you look at it, in the context of what he's been doing since. Alias is really a high point in his career. But the thing is, when it got to the point where he actually had to describe and explain to the reader what had happened to Jessica, he chickens out. Because in the comics, if you'll remember, what she says explicitly is that the Purple Man does not rape her. He doesn't touch her. That that's some kind of mania of his that he just keeps her under his control and she just stands there for eight months. And he never lays a finger on her. Some critics, myself included, have tended to look at that as being the first situation of many that would follow where Bendis is using authorial fiat to mess with realistic expectations, right? You write this entire storyline about a woman who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because she was under mind control of someone who, even in the context of Alias, is clearly running around messing with all of these women and taking advantage of them. And in order to protect his quote-unquote favorite, right, his author avatar or whatever Jessica Jones is, she's the exception, right? She's special because... He didn't rape her. Now, I'll specify, just as we said with uh, Colin Bunn last episode, rape is not something to be used lightly. And certainly the the series, Jessica Jones, does not shy away from the psychological impact and everything that would realistically follow something like that happening. Right? When, Je- when they say Jessica has post-traumatic stress disorder, they are not... Kidding. Yeah. What I don't understand is how pe- I read that people are binge watching this, and I'm, how can you binge watch this? Forty <laughs> minutes in, and I'm, I need a break. I'll tell you the secret. I need... I'll Aaron. tell you the secret. Listen, it's dark. It's darker than Daredevil. It goes for all that Daredevil had the visceral violence. This show is dark in a different way. Just, I mean, there's a scene, I think you, you would have seen this in the second episode or the first episode. She falls asleep at her desk and the lights turn purple and, you know, David Tennant just leans in and licks her cheek and it's a horrifying moment. Oh, another problem. I don't like David Tennant as an actor. I'm sorry. I really don't. He's supposed to be, the lines are creepy, 
the idea mm. is creepy. I just find his actual give it a short appearance episodes. like yeah, it's okay. But I'm not a big fan of Doctor Who actors in or within. <laughs> I'm sorry, Internet. Within um, or without Doctor Who, the Tenant fangirls are going to come for you now. Where would you like me to scatter your ashes? No, no. Um, I'll, I'll tell. I'll say this much. Give him a few more episodes. He okay. really does fit the role well. Kilgrave in Alias, I think, is a little more openly psychotic. That whole thing where he is aware of the fact that he's in a comic book, so he talks as if he's the narrator. (laughs) But that's the sort of thing that you couldn't really do, I think, in a television adaptation. Um, It's just, it's really good. But I'll tell you the secret of dealing with the darkness. Every two episodes, stop and watch an episode of Bob's Burgers. It'll take you right back up, and then, like, you can go, you can go back down again. That's your prescription, Dr. Edry? That is my prescription. Movie Uh, news? Movie news. So the Civil War trailer came out. Yeah. Not so much a Civil War as a Civil Brawl. Thankfully, we do not have, apparently, a direct adaptation of the comics. It's not dozens of costumed maniacs running at each other, screaming politically. No, no, no. It's it's a continuation of the plot from the second Captain America movie. Mm -hmm. The big uh, discussion is whether... Captain America is justified or not in trying to save the Winter Soldier. Yeah. And Tony's saying, well, he he's your friend, fine and good, but he's also a masked murderer. Mm-hmm. And that sort of folds into the whole issue of, they seem to be taking a more reasonable approach to superhero registration this time around, because in the comics it made no sense. No. Absolutely no sense, and, you know, Miller didn't even want to deal with it. But in the film, it seems to be a direct consequence of what happened in Age of Ultron, which was that you had all these superheroes running around with no government oversight because S.H.I.E.L.D. didn't exist anymore, and they're just doing whatever the hell they want, and they go into foreign soil, and this city goes flying up into the air thanks to robots that Tony Stark built. Um... I will say this. How is Tony Stark going to play the indignant role in this movie, considering it's all his fault? Considering he was in Iron Man 2 flipping off the United States senator who wanted the Iron Man armor, and he's like, no, you can't have it, it's mine, and now he's like, sure, the government! I find that a little strange. And the movie really does have that challenge of making the audience have to choose. Because Iron Man made all his villains basically throughout his own, his free movies. Pretty much. He create, he created the, the people, he created the technology. Well, he didn't create, uh, extremists in the third one. Well, he, if he was a bit nicer in, in the opening scene. Yeah, maybe don't leave Guy Pierce on the roof. We could have avoided all this. If he had not been an enormous penis. But, I will say this. We know the trailers lie. Yeah. Trailers lie often. But from what I have seen, if we take this trailer as an indication of how the movie actually plays out, it actually did give me a sense of relief. Because the biggest concern that I had going into this movie was that rather than be Captain America 3, it was going to be Avengers 2.5. And that they were going to lose the whole Winter Soldier story in the larger context of Civil War. What it seems to be now is that they're basically taking the framework of Civil War... But what they're actually doing is the second half of Brubaker's Winter Soldier. Because that all plays out in terms of saving Bucky and the consequences of that. Black Panther looked amazing, by the way. Yeah, Black Panther is in it for a couple of scenes and there is no attempt to hide him or make it a surprise. He's in the trailer. Yeah, the movie audience is going to be, well, we're going to discover who that guy is. The comic audience is, we know him. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually, when you think about it, it is a very clever way to launch the character because Black Panther, in terms of the premise, tends to be isolated from the rest of the Marvel Universe when you're dealing with Wakanda politics and the whole chain of succession and everything that goes on there. So featuring him in another film before giving him his own way, it's it's a great way to launch it because people are going to want to know more. So going forward, I, I think that's going to be interesting. I have... Mm, I have high hopes for Civil War, but I had high hopes for Age of Ultron 2, and I would rather that scenario not repeat itself. I haven't been able to bring myself to rewatch Age of Ultron. Well, it was just a huge I don't letdown. have high hopes because it's the Marvel movies for me are always fun, but I never when I think cinematically about the year, I never think, "Oh, that these are the films I'm waiting for." I do, but only because... It's, it's fun popcorn. It's fun. Yeah. And really, when you think about it, there haven't been that many franchises in terms of films that are as consistently entertaining, you know? Like, I, I was let down by Age of Ultron, but I wasn't going like, well, that's the end of everything and nothing will ever be fun again, because Ant-Man came out immediately afterwards and it was great. So, like, these are movies that I openly admit I go to and I shut my critical brain off and I just... Try to enjoy it unless it's glaringly bad, as with Thor going to the well of magic and t- getting like a, a hair pedicure or something. I don't know what was going on over there. It's a great day spa where you can also see the future. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, More movie news. Yes. There's going to be a Crow movie. In 2016, that's what the producer oh, swears upon his grave, upon the honor of his father and his mother as, uh, I don't know, whatever. Now, there is a bit of a snag because there's gonna be a crow movie, there is no crow star, there is no crow director, and there is no craw craw <laughs> script. But there's gonna be a movie, gosh darn it. Sure, who needs a script or actors in a movie? I mean, when you think about it, isn't that just sort of like extraneous? Well, it's the crow, all you need is the soundtrack, really. And, and, a, and a good, and a good makeup. And get a bird. And to kill they, the, they and can to kill go the Game of Thrones and borrow one of the crows. And to kill the star. Sure. Why not? Oh, ooh. You meant kill the star, not yeah. kill the main actor. Ooh. Well, Eric Mabby has survived, for whatever that... Edward okay. Furlong sort now, of survived, but then I guess it depends on how you define living. Well, who was in the TV show? Oh, God. There was a TV show, there right? There was a TV With, show. Uh, I don't... I, I know Mark the Mark Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was him, wasn't yeah. it? Good, oh. martial, good martial artist, not very good actor. Well, for The Crow, although The Crow isn't supposed to be martial arts. Well, Let's yeah, summarize this by saying okay, that no. James O'Barr wrote a really great graphic novel called The Crow, and that's really all you need to know. Well, Just the, stop there. Well, no, I like the movie, but the movie... Did you? Yes. Yeah. Well, I've watched it as a teen. The movie was very much of its time. It's a very mid-90s goth scene kind of thing, yeah. which doesn't really fit with now with what depressed teens do nowadays. And it doesn't have the emotional impact I mean, of you had a ch- novel. Yeah, you had a chance, I guess, at the emo phase of culture, but that's right. What depressed teens listen to nowadays... It's not the same, though. Yeah. Because the... The, the theatricality, of, exactly. the goth makeup, everything that's made The Crow as a franchise... And it's a franchise of, like you said, one comic, one movie, and a whole lot of trash around it. No, there it's, were like three or four movies. Yeah, but Awful the things that movies. count. Yeah. The things that count. Everything that made The Crow work is very much of its time. It's, it was and is a very contemporary piece. I don't know if you can translate it nowadays without looking hideously out of date. 
I mean, the premise, the premise is supposedly timeless, it's, right? It's the idea of someone whose girlfriend is murdered well, in front of the, his eyes. He is killed and then comes back to life and seeks revenge. It's pretty basic. Yeah. But the, every attempt to translate it, even the other comics, I mean, there have been crow comics since the graphic novel, but none of them have ever been compelling in the same way. And I think because, you know, like, there's no, and some, it's no secret that Obar wrote that as response as to real tra- tragedy. To real tragedy is something that was, like, you feel it when you're reading that book. You feel the sense of loss. You feel the pain. You feel the anger. We don't need, I think, a Crow remake. No. And the fact that there is no director, actor, script, or Who's anything. Who's asking but- for it? There's no demand for it either. Some studio that needs money and says, well, what, what do we own? Somebody owns the film right to the Crow, apparently. Who, do and- we know who? No. And it doesn't matter. Hmm. They're doing it because they need the money. That's if this it. were a rights thing, I could at least understand the logic behind well, it. But maybe. I don't think Obar's running around going like, "Give me back the rights to the crow." Who, he yeah. does. He, he doesn't write it either. So who, who's begging for it? Nobody. nobody. Nobody's asking for it. Speaking of things nobody's asking for in relation to movies, we called it. Fox has removed Fantastic Four two from the schedule, which I guess goes to show that they support mercy killings. No. Everybody knew it was coming. It Euthanasia is okay it, it, with yeah, that, But it, it wasn't just us. Everybody knew it was coming. Even China was like, no. The, the movie was a huge flop, critically and, more importantly, financially. I mean, I say even China. They were hoping that China would, like, save the film's income. And even the Chinese were like, no. No, thank you. The only way to revive this is as a cult comedy. It could The showgirls no, for the I, superhero generation. I, I don't believe that. I think that... The problem with the Fantastic Four has always boiled down to, much like Spider-Man when you think about it, in in the hands of Sony, in the hands of Fox, they have always made these films first and foremost to hold on to the licenses. There has never been any real concern about making a good Spider-Man movie or a good Fantastic Four movie because it's always, you know, we have to put this, uh, we have to put this out, we have to get all this, um, on screen or otherwise we're going to lose the licenses and Marvel will get it back and okay. And that's too bad because I stand by the notion that in the hands of people who know what they're doing and whose priority is to make a good Fantastic Four movie as opposed to just making a Fantastic Four movie, it could work. You could take the Imaginots angle and run with it. There are no other superhero movies who do that. You don't have the sort of high-end science fiction angle of superheroes in the current configuration, right? Who who else would that go to? Who would do that? Yeah, it's kind of sad. That Iron Man doesn't do it, right? No. It's not science fiction in the same well, way. Well, I guess, I guess Guardians of the Galaxy, technically? not. But Guardians of the Galaxy isn't about exploring scientific concepts, mm. right? It's not about going to the negative zone and seeing what's out there and dealing with like the microverse and all of this stuff. Yeah, no one is su- nobody is surprised in Guardians of the Galaxy. They, they they all know it's it's out there. Yeah. There's no sense of exploration. It's, it's so sad. We Fantastic had... Four has that and it's not being used and it's sort of it actually reminds me of how Star Trek has not been able to sustain itself today. Right? When you go out into space, you're not going to explore new civilizations. You're not looking for new ideas. You're going to shoot stuff. Exactly. And that's, I feel like that is a loss, but that is also, I think, why they're just not getting it with Fantastic Four. It's not about beating Doom up. It's uh, never been about, mm. you know, 
Reed Richards is a douchebag, but Victor Von Doom is a bigger douchebag, so they're just gonna fight. And the, you know, Sue Storm is just gonna watch. She's gonna listen to Forty Said. She'll listen to Forty Said. That's important piece yes. of character development. She, Absolutely. That's what we need to know and about the wigs, Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman. The wigs are gonna get worse. The, the every worst, time. The worst wig in cinema history. I, I bet there is a deleted scenes with Alicia Masters sitting and saying, Sue, I'm blind, and even I can see that you're wearing something How horrible. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Multi, uh, but, but now, multi-million Fox is dollar move. For it. And this is, like, this is what I don't understand. And really, like, even I'm trying to put myself into the mindset of an executive who is only concerned with the bottom line financially. I'm looking at the fact that Fantastic Four flopped. And I mean flopped hard. Right? And the last two movies weren't exactly blockbusters either. Well, the first one was very successful. The second one... Was it? Yes. It wasn't very good, but it was very successful. Okay, the second one wasn't. No. And this one wasn't either. No. And I'm thinking, okay, holding on to this license and going through this entire process of producing these crap movies, you might as well get Roger Corman. Just, that, it's not working that out. That was the best of a bad lot. Fox lost money on this film. Why are they holding on to the license? You might as well just give it back at this point. It's not making you any because, money. Because, because, executive logic. If they give back the license to Marvel, and Marvel makes a Fantastic Four movie, TV show, lunchbox, whatever, and that makes tons of money. The executive who authorized the, I will give you back the product, looks like an idiot. But while they hold the license, they're losing money. You it, might as well just, because you're not going to get, if Marvel were to make a good Fantastic Four movie, you would not Nobody see the Nobody wants to anyway. be held responsible as the guy who lost a major license. It's better to hold it close to your chest and wait for a better offer or later blame for the movie failure on the director. I mean, look at Daredevil, right? I doubt that anyone at Fox is sitting there going, if only we had known about Daredevil. No, they made a movie. It was crap. Electra was horrible. Well, they held on to it for a long, long time. And they tried to make a second movie revival. It just didn't work. There was yeah. uh, one by the director of The Grey, I believe. He, he exactly. actually made a sizzle reel. Sure, but the, those movies were never going to work, right? These were com- these were studios who, for whatever reason, don't understand the appeal. And then you get you give it back to Marvel. They can spin gold with it, but that's because the people who are running Marvel clearly have a better cl- idea of how these things work. I don't know. It just I, I don't. I mean, when you're at the point where you're producing films that actually lose money, how did Amazing Spider-Man two do? Sales wise, not good. Not it wasn't as big as a flop, but there isn't going to be a sequel. We know well, that. that we yeah. already know. Poor Andrew yeah. Garfield. I, I mean, when you hear him talk about it now, it's just tragic what happened to him. I don't know. I I really feel like at some point these studios need to understand. You know, Fox, Sony, they need to just give them back. It's not working. You are not making the kind of money that Marvel could make with these properties because you're not Marvel. Right? You have no intrinsic connection. It doesn't really matter to you if these films succeed or not, right? They need to make money. But they're not making money. And you just dropped, you know, they weren't gonna go back to Josh Trank. That was for sure. After the hell he raised, they're not interested in his services again. But, if they've dropped the movie from the schedule entirely, just give up. You know? It's not gonna work. 
Shall we move on to the previews? Let's. February 2016. Yeah, we've talked about Marvel. We'll start with Marvel. Sure. It's a pretty quiet month, all in all. Well, it's not quiet if you're into crossovers, but we're not <sighs> into them. I think we'll start with Parman and Iron Fist, written yes. by David Walker, with amazingly, beautifully unique artwork by Sanford Green. Mm-hmm. I I want this simply to look at it. It looks great. And Iron Man... Iron <laughs> No, not Iron Man. Not Iron Man, please. Power Man and Iron Fist (laughs) together again for the 30th time. Sure. Punching bad guys. Well, this time it might work because Luke Cage has been a significant presence in Jessica Jones. And I think by the time this is released, his Netflix series will be running. Because they've targeted early 2016. So expect old friends, hired goons, crime lords, weird magic... Plenty of power, a flurry of fists, and as much bromance as you can handle. Go so, back to Heroes for Hire. Yeah, it might work this time. Yeah, they're, it's basically an old school action series. It's lethal weapon for the comic stage, which is fine and I'm fun. ready for it. Okay. Uh, Max Bemis, lead singer yeah. of the band Say Anything and author of one of my favorite comics for 2015, Oh Killstrike, is doing a five-part miniseries with Michael Walsh called X-Men, Worst X-Men Ever. The title pretty much says it all. And with Bemis writing, I feel like he's going to deliver. So it's about a young mutant who comes to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. But he joins the team and he is the worst. And listen, the X-Men have had some pretty lousy members over the year. You remember Maggot? Well... When you say the worst X-Men ever, can you be worse than Maggot? Apparently so. Or Sammy the Fish Boy? If, oh, Gold no, Ball. not Sammy the Gold Fish Balls. Boy. No! I will say this. There are very few writers who I feel are capable of topping Sammy the Fish Boy in terms of sheer ridiculousness. But I feel like uh this is one of them. Now, the odd thing for me, this is a comedy miniseries, which is fine, mm-hmm. and both... Bemis and Walsh proved they can do comedy. Yeah. Uh, Walsh had recently the Hank Johnson one-shot for The Secret Wars, which was very funny. Mm-hmm. But it's diff- it's very different types of funny. Hank Johnson was a very low-point comedy about a uh, Hydra agent who has a terrible home life. This was The Secret Wars time. It was a one-shot. It was a comedy one-shot. Okay. And it was all about the subtlety of, you know, oh, my terrible life. Even as an agent for a secret organization trying to take over the world, he still has to deal with the children, and he still has to deal with the wife. And, oh, Captain America punched me in the head again. To, well, there's a the, similar angle to Old Killstrike when you think about it. Yeah, but Old Killstrike was more, you know, wild at heart, as it were. Yeah. But I so, think that those two could complement yeah. each other, because the, if Walsh is about the like the mundane comedy of my wife, my kids, mm-hmm. my, my rent... You take that and you apply it to something like X-Men, but you also need the theatricality and the spectacle of the X-Men, right? Which I think Bemis could do. Please, please, Bemis, have a cable cameo. Just to, like, round things out. (laughs) Have Cyclops talk about his family relations. Yeah, You think your family is screwed up? Well, wait wait till till you you hear hear about mine. Um, Do we want to talk about Avengers Standoff? I feel like I... You could mention that it's I'm there. Not, okay, so... there. February sees the first few issues of the next big Marvel crossover, Avengers Standoff. This is just a reminder that Secret Wars has not ended yet, and we are already in the post-Secret Wars era. Yeah. Now, uh, Mark Begley is a pretty good artist for, you know, light action. I'm channeling Lucille Bluth right now. Mm. I don't hear it. I don't acknowledge it. And Nick Spencer, I like him... At- 
I like his Marvel work. I'm not a big fan of his independent stuff, but we've covered this before. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to wait for reviews, and if it sounds good, maybe I'll give it a shot. And we should probably mention, because we've talked about it, the Shang-Chi first omnibus yes. is coming out. That's written by uh, Steve Engelard, Doug Moon, Shlen Wynn, and drawn by Jim Starling, Paul Galassi, El from Keith Pollard, John Buscema, and Sal Buscema. Yes. The Buscema brothers. Now, it's... $125 for less than 700 pages, which for an omnibus is not a very good deal, I would say. No. no. I'm I gonna mean, points for the, I understand the idea of you're pricing, you're hiking the price because not a lot of people are going, gonna buy it. Exactly. It's Shang-Chi for God's sake. But uh, I'm gonna wait for when a few years down the line when they'll do the complete collection Shang-Chi or whatever. Sure. And I'll buy it then. I'm not paying $125 for 700 pages of, you know, stuff that looks interesting, but old interesting. Yeah, and it's not even the complete omnibus, right? This is volume one of four. So So that's $500. Six, $500 if you want to invest in everything. Wait, wait for it to end in a bargain bin or something. Uh, DC? DC. Okay. Superman. Please. The coming of the Superman with an E. Written and drawn by Neil Adams, which feature, which is a six-issue miniseries about Superman teaming up with a bunch of uh, Kandorians, the tiny people from the shrunken city of Kandor, to fight Darkseid. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a Dark Knight's tie-in, right? No, no, no. No, no, no. It's it's a Neil Adams thing. But remember, this is Neil Adams. We've so we've been so lost recently in the craziness that is Frank Miller that we've forgotten that Neil Adams wrote and draw... Batman Odyssey, one of the weirdest and worst Batman comics of the last decade or so. Was that the one where the Joker offers himself up as... No, that's uh... the Kevin Smith. That was the one where Batman goes to the bottom of the earth and finds a hidden kingdom within. Because Neil Adams, and that's no joke, believes in the Hollow Earth theory. Neil Adams believed there's another civilization inside the planet of the earth. Throw him in a volcano and see what happens. So this is going to be insane in the worst kind of way. The coming of the Superman. Could somebody please just go to DC offices and get all the Nietzsche off their shelves because they're using it wrong? I don't think th- I don't think it's based on Nietzsche quote. I just think he wants to do use that title. Uh-huh. Uh anything else? Well, there's a one shot from our dear friend Frank Miller. <laughs> This is why I was confused, because the coming of the Superman is solicited right next to a one-shot from Frank Miller that is based on the Dark Knight's universe, which I guess is a preview for Dark Knight 4? Yeah, it's... No, it's a preview for Dark Knight 3. But Dark Knight 3 is already going to be halfway done by the time... Well, well, it's a prequel to a preview to a sequel to the mini... I don't go through DC, those convolutions for authors I actually like. Yeah, Why would I do it for Frank Miller? DC is trying to make Dark Knight into a universe of its own. Good luck with that. Well, if it's successful, they'll probably launch the Dark Knight universe or whatever. But the reason that that is not going to work, and I'm going to say this very, like, I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm going to be predictive in this one. And that is not going to work for the simple reason that everyone has been writing Miller's Batman since 1986. It is the same character there are just no nipple mutants out there. So what franchise, what exactly do you have to offer in this supposed franchise? You want to do another dystopian Batman? Take a number. What? Like, what is it exactly that the Dark Knight Returns has to offer as a potential universe that you're not already getting 
in Batman. 80s you want clothes. dead Robins? You have dead Robins. You want female Batman? You have female Batman. What exactly do you get? 80s slang? You don't get that in... who's Who else is writing Batman these days? You wouldn't get it from Snyder, but somebody's no. got to be doing it. Uh, a graphic novel, Wonder Woman Earth One by Grant Morrison and Yannick Paquette. Oh. That's been... You've missed that. Hello. That's been a long time coming. That was originally solicited as Wonder Woman, The Trial of Diana Prince before... Right. Oh, enough, that's why I didn't... Okay. Yeah, before enough time has passed and they've basically folded in into their original graphic novels, Earth One line. Are these Earth One novels connected? No, not they're connected to one another because by now Batman had sequels and Superman sure. had sequels. But I mean, like, but are they... there isn't a universe. It's not an Earth One universe. It's not the ultimate universe. Grant Morrison on Wonder Woman. Grant Morrison always had not a problem, but an in a an inability of sort to write female characters as leads. The only one I could think of is Kill Your Boyfriend. That's twenty years ago now. Well. It depends on whether you... But on the other hand, he had a huge hand in redefining Emma Frost. Yeah, but... And that's that's him. Yeah, like it, it's not a problem that he writes them badly. He just never uses them at the forefront. Even Invisibles, yeah. which had a, a lot of female characters, you can sort of wow. see the focus shift from uh, Dan to King Mob and glosses over Robin and glosses over... Boy basically disappeared from the Invisibles halfway through. Now that you mention it, I am trying to think of a situation where he wrote a female lead and I am getting nothing. When, well, not Animal Man, oh god, not Animal Man. Um, not Doom Patrol? Well, Doom Patrol had Crazy Jane, but she, but was she wasn't never the lead, lead character. Yeah, yeah, the big idea <sighs> was the way Robot Man tries to Has connect to her. Has he never written a female lead? Again, Kill How Your Boyfriend. Long? Well, even Kill Your Boyfriend, she's a, she's a co-protagonist with the guy. Yeah. Wow, how did I never see that before? Well, it's it's not as never? If, it's not as if he doesn't write females and it's not as if he writes no, but whoever he... writes badly, it just that's his focus, which is fine for what he is. But it's a big question of can he write Wonder Woman? Can he write can a he female write lead? The, not There's not no... only a female lead for comic readers, the female lead. Is she the female lead now, now though? Because I feel like, with, in terms of women at Well, DC, they're not gonna let him write Miss Marvel. Oh, hell. That would have been a disaster of epic oh, proportions. No, 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 no. We don't need that. I'm sorry, you're just like blow- I'm still stuck on the, on the revelation that he's never written a female lead. This is a guy who's been in comics well, for what, 30 years well, now? Well, Seven Soldiers had the Bulleteer. So I guess that. Counts. And she was a- no. Well, she had a she, miniseries. And she, she was had the, a miniseries, but she was there was a male bulleteer before her. No, right? he died in halfway through the first issue. So that mm. was that. And spoilers a bit for Seven Soldiers, Sir Justin. His Shining Knight was a woman in disguise. I thought Shining Knight was transgender. It, no, that was part of the uh, Demon Knights. That wasn't the same character? I think it was a rat kind of sort. Oh. In his series, it was just, oh, I'm I'm a, I'm a woman in a costume. How has Grant Morrison been writing comics for 30-something years and never, like, not even in 2000 AD? Because Zenith didn't have female protection. No. Wow. I'm sorry, I'm probably, my mind is going to be blown like for this for the rest of the day because 
Because you don't think about that, right? It's not something that comes to mind until you suddenly realize Garth Ennis he's going to write Wonder fe- Woman. Garth Ennis said more female leads than Grant Morrison, and that's and that's Garth Ennis. Garth Ennis wrote The Pro, which yeah. technically counts as a female yeah, protagonist. Yeah, he wrote The and Pro. And Morrison doesn't even and Jen- have that. Jennifer Blood. Who is the lead in The Filth? Greg Feely. Oh, right. He's a guy. Wow. That's that's pretty shocking. Okay, uh, well, good, good Sean, luck with Wonder Woman. Yeah, <laughs> while Sean is trying to get over its shock, I'm gonna shock you with some Batman coloring books. <laughs> As we mentioned before in this podcast, adult coloring books are a thing now, and DC, like Marvel, is jumping oh on the bandwagon. We've got Jeff Loeb's Hush, a coloring book, which is good, because if you remove the plots, Hush is a pretty, is a pretty book, you know? It's not a great, but Jim it's Jim Lee, Lee art, you, know, you know, fine. And even better, Batman Adventures Mad Love. How would you color Hush, though? He wears bandages Darkly. on his face. Darkly. No, but I mean, his, he wears white well, bandages you on his face. Well, you're supposed to color everything. With what? Colors. You're, you're, you're buying colors, and then you color Like, it. let me just put some pink bandages on his face? <laughs> Why not? That, that, really that would improve everything. That's true, bandages. actually. Hush. God. <sighs> Alright, so there's a Vertigo miniseries I'm interested in. The Dark and Bloody Number 1. This is a six-part miniseries by Sean Aldridge and Scott Godlewski. The solicit was a little confusing, because it starts out by describing a man named Iris who comes back from Iraq and gets involved in running Moonshine. So up until that point, you're thinking, so this is a crime story. But then the text explicitly talks about otherworldly consequences, which makes it sound like supernatural horror... A bit confusing, and Vertigo have had some problems recently with clarifying what the previews text actually has to do with the actual book. So, I'm curious, but I have no idea what <laughs> what to make of well, this. Well, I think it's very old school Vertigo, taking the mundane horror and making it into otherworldly horror. Mm. So that's not new. I uh, also want to bring up Astro City oh, yeah, number 32. 32. Music's been pretty consistently good on that series since it moved to Vertigo, and in that sense, there's not really a lot to say about Astro City. Like, at this point... It's there and it's good. It's there, it's good, you're either reading it or you're not, right? There's no point. But Astro City number 32 is notable because it's a sequel to one of the series' best stories, I think. Yeah, the, the, Steel, J- yeah, the Steel Jake starring uh, Rogue Criminal becomes a private detective. It was an amazing arc. I think it was in Volume 2. Like yeah, really, really early days. It's Twenty years now. <sighs> Just a great story, and I'm glad he's coming back to it. I'm when it comes to Astro City, I prefer the one-offs, the short stories over the bigs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoy the Tarnished Angel, I enjoy Confessions, but yes. I prefer In Dreams more. Sure. I mean, I don't think that's the nice thing about Astro City that there's no contradiction. Like he, yep. even now, even with the recent volume at Vertigo, he does occasionally bring in like a one. How shot many issues or... of Astro City have there been? It's Oh bound to be almost a hundred by now, right? Well, the first one was, was only just six, six issues, issues, right? Then, then the second, second one is like 20, 20, 22. 20 something, but then you had the Dark Ages, which was 14. 16. 16, right? Like it was 4, 4, 4, 4. Yes, yeah, so, and now you have 32. And so. there was another six-issue miniseries in between, I think. Oh, uh, Local Heroes. Local five, Heroes. Five issues. And you had one-shots. You had all sorts yeah. of... Yeah. So there's... Tons of that. It's a very long run. Why don't we get an omnibus? This one went from, if I'm not mistaken, it started at Image, went to Wildstorm, and now it's in Vertigo, right? Yeah, and there was, I think, Gorilla for like two seconds there. When there was actually something called Gorilla Comic. Oh my god, Gorilla Comics. Speaking of omnibuses, Mm. 
Gotham Central Omnibus. Oh my. Written by Ed Brubaker and... Brubaker. <laughs> Ed Brubaker and Greg Rocca with art by Michael Lark, uh, Stefano Guadino, Kano and others. Hello. $100, 968 pages. Now that's a good deal. I, it's fair to say that it's the best series of its time at DC. Ongoing series yes, of the two thousands. It was also, I think, the series that brought Ed Brubaker to prominence because he had been writing Sleeper, I think, beforehand, right? Well, he was doing Catwoman beforehand, which sort of made him mm. a name of as a noir writer. Yeah, but yeah, it's Ed Brubaker and Greg Rocca writing about the officers of the late shift in Gotham City and how they have to deal with a world in which you know you have Batman and supervillains and all sorts of nonsense, and it's a great. Great mm-hmm. crime series. Which if you're wondering why the Gotham TV show sucks, it's because it's not Gotham Central. Well, it sucks because it sucks. The only problem with Gotham Central is the ending, which what which the series had. They forced it to connect to Infinite Crisis. Remember? So what? It, yeah, the ending was the new origin for the Spectre. Oh, I had repressed that. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. Rocca and Brubaker made the best of it, but the ending is very much uh pulling it out of its yeah. of its position. But you have I think It took the focus away from yeah. Renee. Yeah, but it's forty good issues. It's just forty good, solid crime series. You really should give it a shot if you haven't read it yet. Mm-hmm. Fantastic series. Image? Image. Also, not a whole lot to talk about. I think what's interesting to me is Mirror Number One by Hema Rios and art by Huey Lim because Mirror was originally part of Eight House. I think it still is. It still this is, is really but, confusing. But they're taking out the Eighth House brand because I think they realized the sales aren't good and it, it confused people. Because you had Eight House for. Mirror, and then you had Eight House Five. That's how it's been. This is what I didn't understand. It's been confusing to us, and we wanted to read it. So I assume people who were just glancing at, oh, what what am I supposed to order, were very confused, and thus didn't order it. The strange thing is that nobody's been talking about it. Eight House Mirror has already been solicited. So is this... It's instead. It's instead. It's it's a replace... Oh, I had no idea. It's basically, it's the same series with a different name. It's set in Eight House. Yeah. Gra- Graham said in his uh, Twitter account that they're experimenting with stuff and not everything worked, which I guess it's it's a bit of annoying because. So what's I, happening to Eight House then? Are they putting something else? I to guess they would. It? I guess they would just change the names of the series. When it's collected, it's oh, going to be just. I mean, look, I have to applaud Brendan Graham for the experiment, but. Jeebus, this is getting way too complicated. The fact that From Under Mountains to this day isn't solicited as being part of Eight House, even though it clearly is, it, it's just getting really messy. Like, I, I applaud the ingenuity and the, the audacity, daring, the audacity of having a fantasy shared universe with all of these great creators, but if you can't keep it streamlined, you're gonna turn into cross-gen. And that story did not end well for anybody involved. I so. imagine someone doing a cross gem movie and depicting it as a, like an evil cult, sacrificing young comics creators <laughs> to who ran that company? It's like a Penny Dreadful with the witches. They're just mm. like sucking the creativity out of everybody. Um, hey, it wasn't that bad. The comics themselves weren't that bad, but look at how it ended, right? Yeah. And then, of course, Marvel tried to bring it back, and I really wish that had gone better than it did. No, no see, Disney bought cross gem. When the company folded because they wanted to make a movie out of 
the pirate. Abedazed? Yeah. No, not the pirate. Abedazed. The 1001 Nights Arab Myths thing. I mean, Christian had end- a lot yeah. going for it. Yeah. Uh, the pirate series was okay. The... Sigil was decent. Uh, what's the the thing that Mark Way did with the detectives? Ruse. Ruse. Ruse were really good. Mm-hmm. So was the remake. Yeah, but they the idea of making a shared universe made out of different planets, which are con- it was stupid. It could have worked in the same way that like could have, would have. No, didn't. but with Eight House also, right? Look at how it's coming apart at the seams. If you are starting to, I mean, now okay, so. Eight House is not running while Mirror is being released. So then when Mirror ends, is Outhouse resuming its original numbering? There are all of these questions. Outhouse? That, did I just say Outhouse instead of Eight House? <laughs> That's insulting. They are always, the Outhousers are always foremost in our thoughts. We, we do enjoy them. In any event though, see this is how <laughs> the, the confusion surrounding Eight House is overtaking the the merits of the actual comic. Because Mirror, Emerio, Sway Lim, there's a terrorist talking dog. And That's a good creative theme and a good story. Yeah, a heroic lab rat. It sounds like Shannon Garrity's Narbonic on crack, which I am ready for. <laughs> but I just wish that there was a little more clarity about how all these properties fit together because mm. it started out understandable, right? Like It started with the idea of they were going to have revolving teams and they weren't going to be consecutive and that was fine, right? So you jump from Yoris to Arclight to this to that and back again. Okay. Now nobody seems to have any idea what's happening. And that's really disappointing. Also, I'm go- how I'm going to put him in my long box? I'm confused, Brendan Organization, Grimm. people. Oh, it's important to me. Your arts and your, your creativity and your high notions of changing the world. I want to put things in a box. I mean, look. Do you have any idea how hard it is to organize goddamn Marvel comics after Secret Wars? The volumes, the numbering, stop with the number ones already. At at this point, Marvel needs to hire like a Nobel winning mathematician to explain to people (laughs) how their numbering system works. Volume 27, issue 1. It's number 3 and number 100 at the same time. You you remember when they used to do that? They used to have dual numberings? Yeah. Shield Free was also Shield 100, and X Factor 25 was X X Factor. X Factor did like issue 100, and then immediately issue 600, and then Deadpool just ended up going issue 1000, issue 4, issue minus 2. Anyway, back to Image. Yeah. Uh, Snowfall? Yes. Snowfall number one, written by Joe Harris and art by Martin Morazzo, and it's about the year 2045. Hmm. where it no longer snows for some reason. Speaking as people who live in Israel and don't see snow ever, I kind of feel, you know, it's hard for me to sympathize, but okay. And also it's a post-apocalyptic cooperative states of America kind of thing. There's a new government, which is evil because that's what new governments are. Just once I'd like to see the twist where the government is actually the good guy. (laughs) No, not not even the good guys. They're like, okay. They're They're pleasant to work with. Yeah. Who had a good government? Well, I guess. And there's this guy who fights the government called the White Wizard. Gandalf is gonna sue. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Or him or, uh, what's his name? George Martin. George Martin White. was White Wizards? Snow. White Walkers. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, I tend to it, be a little wary. It looks very pretty. The, the preview art looked pretty, but. It's a climate apocalypse story. Mm. And those can be a little preachy. We still remember Waterworld. We do remember we do. Waterworld. And 
Not not only that. What was the name of that story about the world that gets flooded and then? Oh, we should. It's called have... the Bible. It's called the Bible and the flood. It's the Bible a very basic part envi- of our culture. Well, that's the thing. The Bible doesn't have an environmental angle. It's like the flood's coming. Deal with it. And here, it, it's always like the flood is coming because we were. Well, we are, Sean. We are. I'm not. I'm not saying we're not. I'm not going to start saying global warming is a myth and all that. You know, it is what it is. But I feel like whenever comic book writers want to take that angle, it always turns into something that's like proselytizing. It's if bit, only you had reversed your ways. Yeah, it it turns out, unfortunately, Captain Planet-esque. Yeah, and most of the time. And you're finger-wagging to readers who presumably the majority agree with you anyway. So it's sort of like, why are you telling me this thing? This is like when Peter David used to talk about Islamophobia and X-Factor. Just stop the plot and have him deliver like a page. Well, Peter David always had this thing. Yeah, but remember, you're preaching to the choir. His Wolverine first class stopped in the middle of an issue for Wolverine to attack a guy who was selling bootleg DVDs because Mm -hmm. Peter David just discovered that the internet is a thing that people copying him. J. Jonah Jameson decides to like stop the plot of X Factor in order to give a speech about how M being Muslim doesn't mean that she's a terrorist well, and I, I, freedom of the press and freedom well, of I don't America. have any problem with that. I, I, I only have a problem he with that. He stopped it in the middle it's... of the issue but then he continued the plot. It's not he yes. stopped for four issue to lecture. That's an essential And that's and that's the question would this series be A or B? Yeah. Well I guess we'll find out. Uh Dark anything Horse. else? Dark Okay, I want to talk about this because Is I've already it? mentioned Neil Adams. Mm. So we have Neil Adams' Blood by Neil Adams. The, Look the at series, this old man getting his career back. The series Good is actually him. called Neil Adams' Blood. Now, I don't care about the plot. I care only about the part where they spend awful lot of words talking about the cover. Hear this, direct from the Dark Horse's mouth. Okay. Not just 3D, not just animated. Neil Adams has created the first animated 3D cover in comics using lenticular lenses. Blood spins and fires as his blood symbiont shoots from his body towards the reader. So what I'm getting from this is that when I look at the cover, my eyes will start bleeding, and then that's like thematically appropriate. I'm going to look that's like Bloody Mary. Terrible. That's something that DC <laughs> would do. Lenticular lenses. That's what something, the f? That's something DC would do. Dark Horse. I expected better from you. Shame. Ding ding ding. Shame. Also, uh, fifteen dollars for ninety six pages. What? Soft cover, 96 pages, $15. Now, see, we're going to talk about an issue today that shows you exactly what money for value for pages is. That is not it. And I do feel like most of the cost there is to the production of this 3D animated lenticular tinfoil hologram radioactive chromium cover. Are we going back to the Dark Ages, Dark Horse? Are you taking us back to 1994 and this time it's your ass in bankruptcy court? Learn from the past, people. Uh, anything else from Dark Horse? Yes, actually. Mariko Tamaki of This One Summer. Which is I liked new... and you hated. Yes, it's Because true. you have no soul. Because I've seen better. Is writing a new Tomb Raider ongoing with Philip Sevian art. Now, this is a follow-up to the recently released video game Rise of the Tomb Raider, which I admit I'm not super interested in playing because once you get Lara Croft, you're sort of... Her multitude of characters, you mean? She's not that complicated to figure out. Yeah, so she it's sort robs of like, tombs. would you like to play the ninth Tomb Raider game? Which is exactly like the eighth Tomb Raider game. Eh, 
I so I get it. You know, like I'm is ready. Is this to... the one where Peter comes after her for all the misplaced wildlife she shoots mercilessly? <laughs> I want to see Lara these Croft poor take ti- these poor tigers the and is, lions and bears. If, if Peter ever went after Lara Croft, she would kick their butts, and I'd be there for that. Give me a Tomb Raider versus Peter issue, and I will buy the hell out of it. Okay, in uh, Dark Horse's manga department, mm-hmm. this is an odd one. Neon Genesis Evangelion. <gasps> Campus Apocalypse TPB. Okay. That is a $25, 700 pages collection. Do you know this Evangelion thing? Of the shoujo version of Evangelion. Shoujo is in... words, I don't know what they mean. Teenage romance. This is an alternate uh, universe of Evangelion where they're in high school. Give me, like, just for the point of comparison, what is the regular Neon Genesis Evangelion? It's the Watchmen of Giant Robots. It's teens fight giant robots like all, like 90% of other anime, but everybody's depressed and have personal problems. You, so it's you've high recent, drama anyway. You've seriously, yeah, but you've seriously never watched Evangelion? I've never watched it. I know of it by reputation, but with anime, okay. I'm always yeah. very hesitant. Okay. Evangelion, in case there are other Sean-like people in the audience. Which there probably are. Well, he's listening to it after the, we record, so we know there's at least <laughs> one. Evangelion is one of anime's biggest critical and financial hits in the 90s and it took all the old cliches about the young chosen one and his band of teen fellows fighting in giant robots against evil invaders and turned it on its head again very watchman like because mm. now it asks the questions if you're a young guy fighting a war to save humanity how would you look like and the answer is very very screwed Mm-hmm. And they start asking questions that other anime didn't. It's like, where did these monsters come from? When what? did it air originally? In the mid, in the early nineties. Okay. And it's one of the biggest things in anime slash manga. So you had like a manga follow up. You had a manga sequel. You have different universes version. And, ah, okay. And recently they released it, re-released the whole series as a remade TVs, uh, not t- not TV movies, just movies for. Feature length movies for the cinema with better animation and such. And these are the, the no, the and this, anime. and this is an alternate universe in which everything is much lighter and fluffier. Okay. And they play it for romance and comedy instead of horror and gore. So imagine Watchmen mm-hmm. done as a school romance, as Archie. Watchmen babies. Watchmen Archie. Wow. Wow, indeed. Okay. Uh, Only is, this one gets the approval of the original creator. Is this one of those animes that has uh, what's known as the Gainax ending, where it's just... Oh, like, oh, the, it inve- this is invented the Gainax ending. Okay, so that's that would explain the, why I haven't seen it yeah, yet. The, because towards the end of the show, they've run out of money. So the oh, last two episodes no. are made of stock footage. Did they ever fix that, or did it just... No, 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 they, they've, made, they've made it into a thing. The characters basically stare into the screen... There's all sorts of odd images, and they they talk to you. So if you liked the end of Zero, you would no, love, no, you would goodbye, goodbye. Game. I'm already gone. I'm closing the door. I'm <laughs> got. I'm, I am going home. No. All right. So that is why I haven't watched it. Now, uh, now it all makes sense. Boom. Boom. IDW. Well, let's go with Boom first okay. because we do enjoy them more. Uh, Bill and Ted go to hell. This is a four-part miniseries by Brian Jones and Bakan, whoever that is. I'm pretty sure they went to hell in the last movie. In the second movie. I wasn't paying too much attention. There are only two, aren't there? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's been so, a while. So they're going back to hell? Which I guess, you know, if you're in a rock band 
and you've been to hell and come back, you might as well go again. It's like a summer vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill and Ted seem to be doing well at Boom. Well, I've read the first issue and wasn't really into it, so I... It's, the quality is, you know, I mean, it's Bill and Ted. It's, it's gonna speak to a very specific type of reader and not much beyond that. But the fact that they're commissioning more miniseries, and in fact, all of Boom's new releases are four-part miniseries. This seems to be the consequence of them cutting down their output. Yeah, but on the other hand, once, if the series is successful enough, it becomes an ongoing, as we've they seen with Lumberjanes. That. No, but Lumberjanes that seems so to be the new model, because Lumberjanes and Giant Days and Welcome Back. If Welcome the, Back is an ongoing? Yeah, well... well what? It had, it's now has issue five, and it was originally a four issue mini. So either it's an ongoing or it's longer. I think they just expanded it because there's no way. Well, but that was the original announcement with, uh, Giant Days. Remember, it was a six issue mini, and then it was a 12 issue maxi, and and now it's an ongoing. So that seems to be their model, which is fine. You don't just announce a model. Yeah, you just announce an ongoing. You see if people actually want it. Right. But, okay, it it, it could work out. I hope it does. Uh, there are a few other points of interest with Boom. Um, Kennel Block Blues. It's mm-hmm. a prison drama written by Ryan Freire and drawn by Daniel Bayliss. Now, Ryan Freire did Dave, which we kind of liked, mm-hmm. but he did Carb Stomp, which we didn't like. Mm-hmm. So, up in the air... Wasn't Ed Brisson doing Curb Stomp? Ed Brisson was the artist. No, no. No, Ed, Ed Brisson was doing the one about the aliens. I always get the four, confused. the four, the four issue, the boom four issue minis are a bit confusing because we reviewed them all at the same time. Yeah. No, Ed Brisson did the one about the uh, prisoners Prison conscripted, conscripted to fight aliens. R- right, but what was it called? Uh, Armada, <laughs> Warmada, no. something. I don't. Doesn't matter. Whatever. Anyway, so it's a prison drama. Shawshank Redemption in an al- in an animal shelter. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. They're animals. They're like walking. It's anthropomorphic animals, I think. Uh, I don't know. About yes, that. yes. You you don't like anthropomorphism. I do. Well, I like it in Wild's End. I like it when it serves a purpose, where it's not just they're animals because. Uh, I like it, whatever okay. the reason. So I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, this could be interesting. But, uh, the description just says that, you know, there's a, it's a, fa- it's about a family dog who is sent to an animal shelter. He's up for lethal injection. And then he imagines cartoon friends. I have no idea what the tone of this book is going for because it mentions Shawshank Redemption. There were no cartoon friends as far as I could remember in Shawshank Redemption, but we'll set that aside. Steven Universe and the Crystal Gems. This is a four part miniseries by Jocelyn Fenton and Kristen Garland. Hmm. I'm hesitating to say this because Steven Universe has a very passionate and devoted fan base. I'm one of them. I'm not. Hmm. But, so to each their own on that sense. I'm glad that they are getting... Well, there was already a comic, but it wasn't very successful, unlike the other... Was uh, it the same creative team? I don't know, but it was Boom. Okay. So, unlike the Adventure Times, Bravest Warriors, regular show... They haven't been able to translate the TV audience to the comic audience. Okay. Which Boom has been very successful in doing up until now, but. True. But, uh, this one. They're just missing didn't something work. with Steven Universe. Also. What do you think that is? Do you watch the show? I watch the show. So what would you. Well, it's less. Uh, Steven Universe by its nature is less crazy fun adventures with odd overtones, like say Adventure Time or Regular Show, than a straight up action drama. It's very. I don't want to say Japanese as if it's a thing, as if, you know, you can say about something, it's Japanese, like all TV, 
all anime is the same thing because it's not. But it there has is, certain features. There, yeah, there is something about the way the plot is structured. It's much more. There is much more carry on between episode to episode. Like in Adventure Time, continuity you can wise, yeah, okay. continuity and the character building is very impressive. It takes a long time, but a character started a certain situation, and you think, well, that's what the character is because. In American cartoons, most of the time, the characters are what they are, and they don't change. The circumstances change. The character stays the same. Mm. In Steven Universe, you see throughout these two seasons that we had up until now how the characters slowly shift with their circumstances. Mm. So that's a problem because you can't just say, oh, these are the adventures that happened in the background or in the middle right. of episodes because it's there, is a direct, there is a direct continuation. You can't just say, well, it mm. happened between 1 and A and B, because right. we see the direct results. Adventure the, Time has arcs, but they're not... Yeah, in the continu- second... In, for example, in the second season, we had an episode in which two characters fought. And most in most of the time when you see cartoons, well, they're fighting, they're going to make up by the next episode. But no, they spent like good five episodes of the characters slowly simmering and building to an... Hmm. You, not even a fight, just huge, huge anger. And characters burning at each other. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive character-wise and in many other notions. So how can they do that? I don't know. We'll, well give it a luck shot. to them. Yeah. Jonesy. Tell us about Jonesy. Uh, Jonesy is a and self-described... Whether, before we start with Jonesy, uh, if, if she manages to remind you of something that we may have read, please let me know. She is the punk lumberjane? No, that's not what I was going oh, for. What what were you going for? Well, the, Jonesy is a self-described cool dork who spends her time making zins nobody reads, watching anime and listening to riot girl bands and 1D. I don't know what 1D is. One Direction. Oh. For our sins. For your sins. You knew it. I didn't. God, I hate them. Yes. Uh, she has the power to make people fall in love. Much Oh, like. Oh, the one from... Uh, Ruby Paradox. Ruby yeah. Equation. Sorry. The Ruby Equation. Is that not word for word the subject? And in fact, the solicitation text then goes on to say that Jonesy has this power. She's like Cupid with Tumblr, but she can't use it on herself. They're just, that's the, that's Sam the... Humphreys and Caitlin Rose Boyle have just lifted this wholesale from Fresh Romance. Well, I don't know if they've read Fresh Romance. It's not, it's it not. It can't be a coincidence. Well, why not? Because things, it's the exact same the, premise. No, no, no. Because teenage these, girl with the ability to make other people fall in love, she can't find, she can't use it on herself, so she has to find love the hard way. That's exactly what happens in the Ruby look. Equation. I'm going to take you back to the year 2013. I'm going to talk to you about an action movie in which a bunch of dedicated police officers in a very corrupt and ruined city find themselves locked inside one building and have to fight their way out. Am the, I talking about dread? Or the raid. That depends on the size of the cop's guns. Some, what you something. did not mention was whether or not they were carrying bazookas. Because then you would know. <laughs> you no, would actually, know they both had bazookas. No, they didn't. Well, the, the villains had bazookas. Well, who cares about the villains? The villains always have the best stuff. these things happened. Okay. And, um, I mean, that's actually the reason why I'm interested in this. I do want to pick this up because, first of all, Humphreys has been doing some decent work lately. Not anything world-shattering. Mind-blowing, yeah. Mostly consistent. Now, it's odd because uh, Humphreys got his start with Weird Love, which was a very transgressive series about love, and now he's doing something which is very fluffy in nature. Or so it appears Unless to be. he's going for a subversion. Well, it's boom, so there's not, it's not going to be R-rated. 
At best, it's going to be PG-13. No, no, but it can be... Mm. What's the word I'm looking for? It can be unconventional, mm. is what I mean. Because thinking of Lumberjanes, for example, there are a lot of things in that book that Noelle Stevenson sort of slides under the censorship radar. Yeah, it took I, 17 issues to understand one of the characters was actually transgender. Yeah, so there's a lot of... I think Boom has sort of like relaxed standards in comparison to the mainstream companies. As long as you don't scream it off the top of the audience, you know, these characters are yeah. differently gendered and just put it, make it as a part of the plot, they don't care. Exactly. If you can play with the expectations of the audience, it can lead to some pretty interesting things. I think Humphreys can pull this off. I'm mentally going to be comparing this to the Ruby Equation every step of the way, only because... Have you read the rest of the Ruby Equation? Yes, I have. Oh. Uh, pretty good. You know, it, it well, they got to release it as a separate graphic novel online. I think they're doing that for all of yeah, their yeah. Uh, completed projects so far. Some have been good, some have not been good. In fact, it actually, um, I read sort of all the collected stories of Fresh Romance, just as an aside. Um, Ruby Equation, much like our impressions of the first ep- of is these, the best, the only one that's actually good consistently throughout. Because they had a very strong premise for mm-hmm. it. And School not just- Spirit was a mess. I don't, uh, the one with the merit, ruined. Yeah. It doesn't even end. It gets to like, end part one. Where's part two? Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. And like, just no. No, no. IDW. IDW, yes. You we, take this one, cause well, I know what you're gonna well, say. Well, because about it. it's IDW, there has to be a crossover any month. <laughs> Street Fighter X G.I. Joe number one of six <laughs> by Aubrey Cederton and Emilio Lay, so. Oh my god. Both the villains team up, then the heroes team up, then everybody fights. Well, it's a street fight, so everybody fights. Heroes and villains alike. Well, both franchises, I think, sort of work together because they both take something which is realistic in notion, like street fighting is a thing that exists, and the army is a thing that exists, Mm. but then they feed them through pop culture craziness till it becomes something completely different. But when you look at street fighter, even in the context of yes, street fight, street fighting as a phenomenon exists, but Street nobody Fighter shoots had, fireballs. Like, nobody shoots fireballs. Nobody's like giant green electrical beasts. Nobody is like a 300 pound sumo whose hands move so fast you can't even see them. Nobody shoots Hadoukens out of their hands. I mean, because it's I, I assume the G.A. Joes would cheat because they're soldiers. So one of the guys pulls out, uh, I don't know, a fireball or an Hadouken and Snake just calls in an airstrike. Is, and then the fight is over. Is Guile going to join G.I. Joe? Well, yeah, because Gu- he's a soldier too. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's really confusing. Just, it all starts as a routine mission. The G.I. Joe team is just sent to bring this guy back. You've been on vacation too long. Your warrant officer wants you back. But what about Chun-Li? No, she's Interpol. She's not the military's uh, problem. But G.I. Joe are sort of... No, they're Americans. It's, it's the comic. It's not, oh the, it's not the movie. They're pure American. America. It's America. Ah, uh, good luck, Aubrey Citizen. You've got your work cut out for Transformers you. Transformers reaches issue 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, that was the thing formerly known as Transformers Robots in Disguise, now known only as Transformers because Robots in Disguise is the name of a TV show, okay. which now has its own comic set in a different version of Transformers because confusion. As one does. Uh, is this the one that you've been talking up or? No, that's the other one, which is less good, but still okay. Oh, it's gone downhill? No, 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 no. They had two, Two Transformers series running, showing different... They still do? Yes. Okay. Different cast of characters. And this is not the one that you... Th- that's not the one that I super love. That's the one which is okay. Okay. 
Okay. This right, okay. The one that so, is, but is but uh, for issue fifty, they're starting a new, a new plot, a new big crossover thing. Uh huh. It's called All Hail Optimus, in which the Transformers, for their for the sake of humanity, take over Earth. Didn't they just do that with Tom Scioli? No, that was a different thing. That was J. Joe taking over here. Sean, you're confused. I'm really. I mean, IDW. I I give them credit for. Going as far as they have with maintaining these franchises mm. and trying, but I'm so confused. Well, well you're not <laughs> going to get into. You're, well, you're not going to get into issue fifty. No, no, because the their version of Transformers start, restarted its universe with All Hail Megatron. That was their big launch event in which the Decepticons took over the Earth. So for long time fans, it's sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But this wasn't the fo- This isn't a follow up to that story, or I guess it's a callback. Uh, it's hard to explain. The it continuity if you're not, is, yes. is just weird. Well, like no. this series, this Transformer series, it's issue fifty now. This is the one that begins with the Decepticons taking over Earth. No. Okay, I'm gonna do it. Okay. You know, give me the breakdown. When IDW bought the license for Transformers, they started with a bunch of miniseries. Okay. Which were okay, but not very popular. Then they said, "Well, we'll do an all upheaval of the status quo." And they had something called All Hail Megatron, which ran for 16 issues or something like that. Which was a big... Maxi-series. Yes, yes. Okay. A big event. The Decepticons take over the Earth. The Transformers lose. This was a new beginning for the continuity? Or it was no, based it's a on continua- the... No, it's a continuation. Okay. okay. But, and then after that, they had uh, an ongoing regular Transformers series. And then they had the split in which the series became ah. Transformers more than meets the eye and just Transformers. And these are two separate continuities. No, at no, this point. no. Oh, they're both Conti- same continuity, but different cast of characters in a different ah, part of okay. Transformers is set either on Cybertron or on Earth. And Transformers more than meets the eye is a cast of oddballs going into space to ah, seek adventures. Okay, okay. Okay. Now it's clear. You should work for them. <laughs> you need to do, like, the Transformers they have, Guide to the Universe. They have people doing that. Uh, anything for you from IDW? Uh, just to mention that Gem and the Holograms get a Valentine's Day special. They can't do it for every holiday. They had one recently. Go right ahead. It's written by Kelly Thompson, art by Corin Howell and Sarah Richards. You know, it's not Sophie Campbell, but Sophie Campbell's still doing the ongoing storyline, so sure. Dark Gem. <laughs> Sounds God. like a kind of chocolate. Oh my God. 90% dark. That's crazy. And one last thing, Wormwood Gentleman Corps Omnibus. That's the Ben, that's the complete run of the Ben Templesmith's horror comedy thing about a parasitic demon worm taking over a zombie and using him to save the earth. That is ringing no bells whatsoever. Well, it ran for like, uh, 14 issues and it's Ben Templesmith in the five, six years ago. Ben Templesmith writing and drawing, so it's gonna look pretty, and it's okay. 400 pages for only 30 bucks, which is a good deal. It's a good deal. Ben Templesmith as a writer, mm, it can be a little hit and miss, right? I, that's the only thing by him I read, so I mm. think it's a hit. Alright. Reviews! Shall we start with the big one? Let's start with the big one. Well, it's not the big one, because the big one was gonna be the last one. It's the one everybody's talking about, Dark Knight 3, The Master Race, uh, book, it has two stories in this, this issue. Book one, written by Miller and Azzarello, with art by Andy Kubert and Klaus Jensen. Except, of course, we now know that Miller's yeah, it's name. It's like Miller in very small print. Ceremonial. And then we have a short story, The Atom. Uh, The Dark Knight presents The Atom, mm. written and drawn by Frank Miller, with inks by Klaus Jensen. 
I know that we've been talking about it, but that the title, heroic Klaus Jensen, by the way, that, that title. What are we going to do about that title, Tom? Well, the master race. It's intentional. The master race, yes. really? Yes. Anyway, Sean, would you okay. explain the plot? Oh my God, we're finally here. Okay. So we have the two uh, parts, right? Let's start with the one that Azarello wrote. Hmm. Okay, so we're back in the usual painfully clumsy attempt to appear relevant because the story begins with all the subtlety of a brick in which Gotham cops are chasing down an African-American teenager apparently planning to kill him in a very, very poorly taste, you know, very poor taste of Boston, Chicago, all of these uh, situations that have been happening in the States. Batman intervenes, fights the cops. John Stewart, Bill O'Reilly, and Al Sharpton all have things to Batman say. Batman is back after a long, long break, and he's apparently fighting the police now instead of the co- of the criminals, which is fine because the cops are criminals in this new Gotham. And CNN has something to say in the splash page, right? And Fox and, and Fox. MSNBC. And this is how you know that this book is out of touch. John Stewart is in it. And as much as I would love for John Stewart to come back, he's not coming back. So well, give it yeah. time. If the Dark Knight can come back, so can John Stewart. I guess. And he's, then... <laughs> not the, he's not the news broadcaster we want, but he's the one Maybe we he's need. he's a clone? Because this is like clone, year, clone years st- in the future. Clone Stewart. Clone Stewart, sure. Instead of John. Uh, so Commissioner Gordon's replacement, uh, Commissioner Yindel, yep. has decided that she has had enough of these mother-effing bats in her mother-effing plane and decides to stop Batman once and for all. So you have this interlude of Diana, Wonder Woman, going on and on about how ungrateful people are and that they're heroes, even though everybody hates them, which, um, Diana, you're not in the Marvel Universe, so maybe... Tone it back a little well, bit. Well, she's in a Frank Miller cover band, so. Which I guess is just as bad when you think about it. So, Apparently, and she has Superman's kids, because of course she does, right? What other purpose could Wonder Woman have besides being the receptacle? I'm going into like Dave Sim territory here, right? Her vag is dark and full of terrors. Anyway, so Superman's kids are flying around doing nothing. Really, like having no impact whatsoever on the main plot. Uh, then we go back to Gotham City, and I am going to spoil the ending because I think that when I, when I reached the ending, it all clicked for me. I'll, I'll explain. So, Yindel captures Batman, unmasks Batman, it's Carrie Kelly. I feel like at that point, Miller was like, you mean Carrie's not a whore? I'm done with this book. Sure. Azarello, take over. No. Do what do what do what you want. I'm uh, not having okay. Batman be played by a woman. No. Impossible. No. So um <laughs> no wonder Miller wants a do-over, right? I I didn't understand when Miller was doing his interview which we discussed earlier. I didn't understand why he sounded so bitter cuz he kept saying you know, Brian did his own thing, and now it's a four-part story, so I'm going to do my own uh, part to that. It's like, what is it that's pissing you off so much about Azarello's story, considering you have a credit on it? And now I understand. It's because Carrie Kelly isn't Catgirl anymore. She's freaking Batman, and Miller don't play that. Well, for this issue, she's, she's Batman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when... When you read this, uh, the natural expectation is for a train wreck. That's, I think, what we've been waiting for, and a lot of people have been praying for simply for the comedy value. Schadenfreude. But 
unfortunately for the people expecting that, it's, it's been delayed to Dark Knight 4. <laughs> it's by Brian Azarler, who's not a writer I'm a big fan of, but he knows what he's doing. And it's by Andy Kubert and Klaus Jensen, so you know it's gonna, it's not gonna look like the horrible, horrible Dark Knight Strikes Again. I've tried to reread Strikes Again recently. Why? To prepare for this one, and I just couldn't make it. <laughs> it, it wasn't just that Miller's art was terrible there. The story's he, horrible too. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just talking about the art. Lynn Varley's co- digital coloring, remember she discovered Photoshop there? I think that was just her getting back at him at that point. I, I don't know. Anyway. Like, Here's so, my revenge. So we this, vomit these inks on the page. So this is not a disaster. And if it, if this was simply called, uh, Elseworlds presents future Batman fights back or whatever. Sure. Nobody, I think, would have any problem with it. It's, you know, the problem is this issue really, it's like we said before about a lot of stuff. It's entirely set up. It's like, what's happening? What's happening? And then, oh, the big twist. Well, we don't other... we don't really get a sense of the characters. We only get a sense of the setting and but the this way is where the marketing comes in. You are meant to like. You, I'm asking you, why did you read Dark Knight Strikes again? But you're absolutely right. This book is purporting to be a direct sequel to previous books. So they don't need to explain who Commissioner Yindel is. Yes. When Carrie Kelly is asked, you know, where's Bruce Wayne? She says Bruce Wayne is dead. That's not inconsistent with what we already know. Superman is. I wonder if it's a, a sequel for Strikes Again or if it ignores it completely. I have no idea. I don't actually. I don't remember. remember. Did Superman die at the end of Strikes Again? I know Green that something, something, did something went down with um with uh, Green Wonder, Wonder Woman. Wonder yes. Woman and Superman got together in that. Yeah, book, well, so that's why we have the children here. Right. The interesting thing for me is that theme-wise, it seems to be much closer to Kingdom Come. With the generational yeah. conflict. Only in Kingdom Come, we have the old heroes coming back because the, these, you know, these awful kids. It was basically Wade and uh, Ross doing, the, damn these awful kids well, with their new toys and electricity in the loops. I take that a step further, though, because the thing with Kingdom Come, and I think the reason it still holds up, isn't just because it's a youth versus age conflict, but rather because the young heroes led by Magog are killing villains. Yeah. They're violating the supposed golden rule of superheroes and the characters who represent the no-kill rule, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman in particular, are reacting to that. It's not so much like we've been usurped by these youngsters who don't know what they're doing. Well, but it's that's, that they don't have that's the That's part of the morals. thing, and I don't think that's Wade's thing, but that's very much a Ross thing. Uh, saying things were a lot better when I was a kid. Hmm. A lot of Ross' career as a writer, like Justice, for example, can be read as, man, these toys were so much cooler when I had them. Sure. And I your think toys th- are terrible. What Wade contributes to that, I think, is just the the thematic excuse. Because usually that kind of mawkish nostalgia is just because things were better back then just because. Yeah. And here it's, okay. there's a but reason. But here, there, it's turned upon its head because... It's the young children going against the status quo. And there's a big question asked in the beginning. Is Batman against for the people or against the man? Now, you've read it as very insulting, insultingly unfitting for the current political climate in America because it takes this idea and doesn't understand it enough, doesn't respect it enough. It just uses it for yeah. shock value. It is. It's exactly like... Maybe slightly better done. But you remember when Miller was doing Guantanamo Bay in Civil War. You knew what he was doing, and you knew where it was coming from, but it's like if you are going to take a political issue that is a real issue, right? It's something that people are struggling with 
today in the the society in the culture this isn't a distant problem right there, yeah it's a problem racial tensions are very high in there the states there was uh, when mark miller was writing the authority and the one time that he smartly enough let go of an idea the it started with the authority taking over this foreign government deposing mm. the president it was originally supposed to be malaysia but people told him well if people read this and you use the name of an actual country then the readers will start saying well i don't really know anything about this country If, and if I read about it, will I discover that what he's saying is true? No. All your bullshit is going to be revealed. Just use a no-name country. So when you start referring to actual events with superheroes, you need to A, tread carefully, and B, be very, very smart. And the yes. question is, Miller obviously can't do it nowadays. Oh, Miller wrote Holy Terror. Yeah, Who but, thought that was topical? But Azzarello maybe can. And I'm willing to give him enough rope here. Because there, it, I don't think he takes it to an untowards the situation. There isn't any, anything horrible yet. No, there's And obviously some value in the notion that you're presenting a Batman now who can no longer side with the police. It's not, because it's not Commissioner Gordon's police, right? Gotham Central would have never done this. Because Gotham Central was not written at a time where it was in all the headlines and there were all of these killings and all of these protests that this is before that right if you are writing something that is trying to address a problem that's happening now and you're using Batman who is maybe not the best character to talk about this because Batman is a vigilante he doesn't represent Bat- Batman is a rich man beating up poor people yeah which or supervillains Well, right? no, but Whichever the, way you the problem with Batman as a metaphor is that, again, he's a rich white guy who spends in time beating the unfortunate. Yeah. So if you take it at face value, that's a horrible idea. That's something that Donald Trump would dream of. Pretty much. But by making it Carrie Kelly and by making her fight mm. against the police, he's taking it into an interesting place. And one of the things that made the Dark Knight Strikes, uh, the Dark Knight Returns, not the Dark Knight Strikes again. No. One of the things that made it good, other than the fact that it was, you know, beautifully drawn, and it was amazing, and it was such a work of, cr- such a craft of art. It was also the perfect time to be coming out. Because yeah, but it was also topical. It did talk about politics. It was much more vague about it. You know, we had the president, but everybody knew who the president was that mm-hmm. was shown in there. And we had the Cold War. So it's not shying away from topicality, which is something that you need to do If you're going to call yourself the Dark Knight. Now, the prob- one of the problems I have here is that if you're going to do a sequel to Dark Knight Returns, you need to bring your, art- your artistic A-game. Mm. And Kubert is fine. He's a good yeah. artist. He doesn't have the page layouts uh, power that Miller had. No. You, you have something in the first two or three pages with, again, the news breakdown and, and the, the shadow. Messages and messages and the sh- And that's just a cover band. That's basically, oh, you remember when Miller did it? Wasn't it fun? But then they just drop back to regular old comic panels. Also, as an aside... It's not, it's, not as, it's not avant-garde enough to be what it wants to be. Dear DC, Marvel, Image, and everybody else, if your writer is over the age of 30, please do not ask them to write text messages on screen because nobody writes like that. I, I really don't like when Ezra Lodoni... Do you remember Space Pen? No. It was one of his, it's, uh, was a sci-fi feature, future book that he wrote for Redigo, and half of the text was completely uncomprehensible because everybody spoke in future speak. Lol. No, 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 worse. It's like, 
he tried to extrapolate what would the future speak be like from nowadays. So, but you're old, Brian. You don't know what present day speak old. is. I think he's like he's it's not much older than us. He's got to be. I mean, I know how to write text messages that don't read like BBL, RBQ, mm. TTFG, whatever. Uh, the second part, which Can, I think before we'll... we get to the second part, did you at all have any problems with the pros? Azarello's prose? Because I felt that maybe he was dialing it up a little too much in terms of purple. Well, he was like, dialing it up for from his regular, but he was dialing it down from uh, wannabe Miller. So why Why did you let the ants knock you from the sky? That's very Millerish. It is, but... Well, one of the reasons we liked the original was because Miller was very good, at the time at least, in yeah. making it purple prose work. I guess. This and one... there isn't a lot of talking in this issue, considering you have... Many, many silent panels, just long action scenes of just people whack, beating. Whack, 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 yeah. whack, 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 Which really, if Miller had been writing this, those whacks probably would have been something else all too Well, together. we have, again, we have the Miller short story, which is yes! basically an introduction to that universe version <laughs> of the Atom. Okay, and the first three li- the first line of this story is when Gene divorced me. Let it go! <laughs> Let it go! <laughs> Oh my God, Frank and, Miller! And here's the sad thing, like you, like I've told you, I've tried to reread the Dark Knight Strikes again. Mm-hmm. The Dark Knight Strikes again starts with the scene with the Atom fighting a monster in a petri dish. You remember that? I didn't. No, it was better because it was the one time where the art kind of worked. Because uh, the Dark Knight Strikes again was crazy distorted, so much it kind of, like this. Yeah, one. yeah. So it kind of worked because the Atom was fighting something weird and. Not just inhuman, but even not regular, not something that you can think of. So it worked. It was a little man against something huge and almost Cthulhu-esque. Okay. And I guess if you're charitable, you can say that there's a parallel there to the theme of, right, Batman as the little man fighting all of these terrible forces. Yeah, the little man who's actually very, very powerful. Right. Here it's just, you know, the Atom fights something and then this universe version of Supergirl, which we met in the story for... Two pages comes mm-hmm. to meet him. She's the daughter of Superman and Wonder Woman. I I think most of the art here is because a friend of mine actually met the people involved, and it's it seems to me less Who's involved. This is Miller's. Yeah, drawing, yeah, but isn't it? it's Klaus Jensen's inking, and Klaus Jensen can pretty much save anything. So I would assume that the original version of the art is much closer in spirit to the. That Get, horrible cover. The, the horrible cover. Superman with constipation and an enormous dong. Why? Why? Why does his hands look like those giant foam hands? And again, what the hell? what's going on with this cover? The only way that you can make, you can give Miller's version, Miller's art nowadays a pass is by saying that he's basically drawing a parody of himself, that this is the Mad Magazine. Frank Miller? But he's not. But you know that he's not. Frank Miller has never been, even in his prime, right? When we're talking about like the overall career of Frank Miller, never a day in his damn life has he been self-paradising. He's not that kind of person. He well, does not th- have that kind of humor. No, Let I, me draw your attention no, to I the think, first I think, page. But here. I think he is. It's just not funny. And the, and the, no. And whatever parody is, just, even if you accept it as a parody, well, all superheroes are stupid. Yay? That's That's not a joke. Tell Garth Ennis he's been banging on that drum for 40 years. No, hang on. Let me draw your attention to the first page of this Adam story in which he's standing on the bottom panel, legs askew. What is this pose? What What's happening here? Like, Miller, 
when that cover came out, right, with Superman and his outline and everything that was going on over there, people laughed their butts off, right? Frank Miller being Frank Miller, ha, ha, ha. But look past that, right? You're saying read this as if it's a mad magazine. Even in the panels that are not meant to be that sort of explosive display of Millerisms, I'm looking at the Adam here, standing like, Dudley do right doing squats. I don't know what's going on over here. What can you really say about that, right? This, this can't be parody. And then you have this close up of his face where he looks like Frank Miller thinks he looks like. If that makes any sense. It looks very sad. Looks very sad, looks very wrinkled. I just don't. And then of course we have that glorious close up of like the, the, that, what is this face, Tom? It's Superman as wrinkly Ronald Reagan. Why is his foot like tilting at a ninety degree angle? What's what's happened? Like no sense of anatomy. Well, if you want to be nice, where like, is his armpit over here? Why is it like at his rib cage? What is? If you want to be nice, like Kurt Busiek, which yes. is who is always nice apparently. Yes, you can say that this is Miller's ver- version of Superman, which is again a ridiculous caricature, but. This is also his version of the Adam, apparently. Everybody's a ridiculous caricature, so the caricature loses its value. Because sure. everybody's... This is his every- too, right? This cover of him with the blood-spattered Batman? That actually kind of works. Does it? Look kinda. At the, look at how he's standing. <laughs> he's well, got the audience one leg. Can, the audience can't see it, Sean. No, but like the... This is, this is a, not We're talking about medium. the variant cover that Miller did in which Batman is crouched over with bloody fists. And there's blood all over the the cover. You could find that. You could Google it pretty easily. What is this pose? Look at his leg, and uh, like anatomy 101. And it's so much more jarring when you have other artists doing like Carrie Kelly, Batman, and they at least have some kind of logical layout. And here, like you look at Miller's art, and I don't know what to make of it. I just don't. I'm looking at it, and it's like. This is not Transformers. His arm is not supposed to be there. If Batman was a Transformer at the end of this series, I would be very happy. Sure. He would turn into the Batmobile and just drive away. That would at least make sense. So, in in conclusion, the fact that this is not the book we were hoping it would be because it's not the schadenfreude that we would have gotten from a Miller book, even though that Adam... You you know, if you're an Azzarello fan... You, you'd like it. It's a very Brian Azzarello Batman comic. But it's Brian Azzarello working in the context of Dark Knight Returns. Well, in other words, it's not pure Azzarello. Well, if Brian Azzarello want... always worked, I think. Well, not always. Not when true. he When he, he writes for DC. He has written Batman, though. Yeah, and that was so, also in the context of being Batman. And, sure. And ev- but like here it's like, being Frank Miller. Like, like you've said yourself, basically 90% of all Batman from 1986 up until now have been Frank Miller's Batman. Sure. You can't work in any other context. I because just... he he his ideas of Batman are everybody's idea idea of right. Batman. And now. Look, now. And and Dark Knight 3 was not going to be the place that was going to change that. I just don't I don't see the appeal mm-hmm. is the issue. Like I don't know how I could recommend this to someone because you're not going to get the giggles. Well, I guess you'll laugh at the Adam. I mean, when Gene divorced yeah. him, it all went downhill. That's when it started. We remember when we talked about the Rob Liefeld Bible Project thing? Yes, it's, I do. <laughs> I, I, for me, it's exactly the same. It's not a train wreck. 
And it's not good enough to me to be worth following after it. No, because God, I, no. Because I'm not a big fan of Brian Azzarello, and I have enough Batman in my life. I don't need more of it. Now, for those worried, this is going to ruin the Dark Knight. Or what? Nothing is going to ruin the Dark Knight. Strikes Return. Again did that already. Yeah, and no, Strikes Again didn't do it. That's important. No, Strikes Again wrecked the Dark Knight Returns. Like it was. No, it didn't. The Dark Knight Returns is still there. Just like before Watchmen didn't destroy Watchmen. Right, but what I'm getting at is if you read The Dark Knight Strikes Again and then you reread Dark Knight Returns, it'll never be... It's like if you read before Watchmen and then you go back and you read Watchmen again. It's like you'll never really get that out of your head. I disagree. I've managed to forget it. Okay. Move uh, on. Move on. Uh, shall we do Marvel? We did DC. Sure. Uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur... Written by Amy Reader and Brendan Monteclair, the team beyond Rocket Girl, mm-hmm. and drawn by Natasha Bustis. She's new, I think. I, yeah, I just I'm I'm worried about saying the name right because okay, it sounds right. Natasha, but that's what we're new for. Yeah. Natasha, Natasha. Okay. Uh, the plot. we here at the Smorgasbord are known for mispronouncing. That's our thing. Uh, young uh, Lunuela Lafayette is a. High school, not high school, right? Elementary school. Actually. Elementary school student <clears throat> who's too smart for school, too smart for the other children. And how? And too smart for her parents, but not super scientifically smart enough for something like the Future Foundation. Mm-hmm. So she's basically stuck in between with people who don't understand her, and she doesn't really care that they don't understand her. She's too busy trying to invent the next big thing that would make the super scientific community notice her. Which uh, which is something that I found weird because she is rejected from the Future Foundation but she invents a Kree detector. You would think that that would be right up there. Well, I guess in the Marvel Universe invention an alien detector is something that you do for, like, oh, you invented an alien detector. How nice. I opened the portal to a new universe. (laughs) You know, their version version of scientific progress is very different than ours. That's true. And... She discovers an odd orb, which is apparently connected, and that's the odd thing of this issue, to the time frame of the original Devil Dinosaur, which is a Jack Kirby creation about dinosaurs and proto-humans at the dawn of time. There's even a, an editor's note saying, if you want to know what's going on with these, all these characters, read Devil Dinosaur number one, which, so, is, from what I saw, was published in 1978, so no. It's a huge surprise that they're tied so deeply to the original series, mostly because the character starts but in the classroom when they went to show how smart she is. The teacher asks her, can you explain what I told you about evolution? And the child is like, no, but I can tell you what evolution actually is. And then she discusses she calls, evolu- it, she calls it the theory of evolution. No, the teacher says it's the not theory, a theory. Which is very good, except you're doing it in a, in a series that's taking place in a universe in which humans and dinosaurs share the time frame. The existence right. of devil dinosaur... End of this, again, this is the Marvel Universe. The Celestials kind sure. of made it all. But so she, in the Marvel Universe, she's wrong. No, she Evolution isn't. is not a theory. It's a wrong idea. Think about it, though. When they say evolution, they don't mean what we think is evolution because we don't live in a world with celestials. No, she actually quotes from a scientific text there. Right, but that scientific text could have also like mentions to so you're saying celestials evolve. So you're saying if we let her speak for a few more, uh, Bubbles. Sure. We she would have, have been like the celestial. So everybody knows that in the 1800s, Charles Darwin talked to the high evolutionary, and Nathaniel Essex perfected human cloning, and therefore we have been able to prove concisely, thanks to time travel, that 
Cavemen did in fact Richard, exist. You know, when Dr. Reed Richards traveled to the dawn of time, it wasn't the year 5000 exactly. BC. This is a universe in which time travel, which in our universe is impossible according to Einstein and all that, has been, it happens on like a daily basis. So their evolution okay. is not our evolution. Okay. <laughs> but it makes sense. The problem I have with this series is mm-hmm. the scenes in the original Devil Dinosaur yeah. timeline, which just don't work. Mm-hmm. because that might have been a miscalculation yeah you should have just brought in the dinosaur and for some reason they the villains apparently for the first arc would be the evil monkey people from that timeline which are not really threatening enough on their own especially not if one of your protagonists is a super smart girl with technology and the other is a giant dinosaur well my issue was that I didn't know who they were like I had to look up the well they, for they've Moon said Boy. in the issue you know uh, these are the evil the killer folk and the small folk. folk yeah but that doesn't tell me anything about them well the killer folk I uh, call the killer folk what no, else but do you need to know well from what I understood like one of them's a witch yes so is this a magic versus technology thing partly <sighs> that sounds interesting but I think you're absolutely right that they might have gone a little too far into inaccessibility when they're showing the moon boy scenes. Well, I don't think especially it's, because I don't think it's inaccessible. It simply doesn't work in the context of this character and specifically that art. If they would have found a different artist to do to shift in style, ah. because I would love it if there if if you could condense the whole. Uh, Devil Dinosaur scene for like two page montage of Kirby. Bring like Tom Seale to do a two page spread of yeah. how Devil Dinosaur got here. If Mike Waringo were still around. Yeah. He could have done this. But just putting uh, Natasha Bustos art, which works for the modern day scenes mm-hmm. in the past, it's too smooth and too lacking in big action moments. When you introduce Devil Dinosaur, that should have been, you know, the panel. It should have been like huge and roaring, but here it's just, oh, it's Devil Dinosaur. He's kind of good. He yeah. actually reminded me a lot of Old Lace from Runaways. Sort of like this cartoonish yeah, yeah, version a gener- of a... It's generic dinosaur thing. Yeah. Generic T-Rex. Which, but my question is, was he always like that? Yeah, I just, don't have any frame of reference. It's just a big red dinosaur thing. And not supposedly a T-Rex, but you know, he's like, gen- when you think of a dinosaur, the generic dinosaur, mm. that's Devil Dinosaur. Except he's red. Yes. Okay, I'll say this. Um, I actually enjoyed this issue. I had the exact same problem you did, which is that the attempt to create this continuity bridge, and in fact, there's this specific scene where you can tell, like, the, the transition from Moon Boy to Moon Girl as protagonist is punctuated with a very specific event, so it's meant to be like, this is the end of that story and the beginning of a new one, but... That sort, that whole scenario in the prehistoric time was very weird. However, I really liked Lunella, Lunella's character. Um, she's the sort of precocious child genius who, you know, there's a very thin line between sympathetic and obnoxious. Like, if you had pushed her a little bit further, she would have been like Quentin Quire. I really like the fact that she doesn't care that the kids don't like her. She's like, yeah. woe is me. She's not Peter Parker. I don't have friends because I don't have time. I have yeah. research. She's not Peter Parker, which yeah. is very important. She, does, she doesn't ask for friends. She's after the next big thing. And I would be so happy if the series would stay in this direction. Yes. If, she, if it won't suddenly be, well, I want, really want to be popular with my T-Rex friend. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. She cares about other things, which is fine. Not all children it's... needs to be uh, surrounded by tons of friends. Yes, yes, absolutely right. Embrace the, the loneliness. Yeah, she loneliness. She 
says flat out she's not interested in having a social life it's not even something that she yearns for she's not really bullied she's sort of you know people make fun of her but it's because she is ostracized for her intelligence but that doesn't bother her right her parents ask her you know why you do not have friends and she's like no i have this really cool piece of technology that i'm trying to design and i'm putting skates in my sneakers and i want to do all of these things she has other interests and that's perfectly okay and i i absolutely agree with you that the last thing i'd want is for her to, like, use Devil Dinosaur to be popular and then, like, get a love interest and just fall into the pattern of every other teenage superhero that has ever been. What I would be glad is to get a crossover with Sentinel. You remember Sentinel? The one about the boy and his giant Sentinel? Yeah, but I think... Uh, oh, right, they destroyed the Sentinel. Not just that they destroyed the Sentinel, but I'm pretty sure... What was the guy who did Justin? Avengers Arena? Dennis Hopeless? Oh. Killed off Justin Seyfert, so... Oh, right. Yeah, as with so many of Marvel's great teenage characters, they just threw them in the meat grinder and... Well, you know, uh, The Hunger Games just came out and that no, teenager was very popular. Not an it. excuse. Nobody. The thing is, like everyone always compares Avengers Arena to The Hunger Games, but what that comparison tends to miss is that... All the rest of the cannon fodder in the Hunger Games, you don't care about them anyway. See, I, I you don't did, know them. Well, I didn't interested. like the Hunger Games. I actually kind of enjoyed Avengers Arena when it came out. Because you knew who the characters were. But that is exactly the trap that Hopeless fell into. Because mm. what ended up happening was you went and you killed off characters who could have served a purpose. Right? Absolutely. Give me a team with Moon Girl, with Justin Seyfert, with Amadeus Cho with well he's the hulk now but you know what i mean like get all of these kids together and have an adventure that could have been the new runaways instead of alternate reality nobody gives a crap i really like this issue i think um natasha Bustos art was really good i agree with you that it would have been interesting to have sort of an art shift in the prehistoric times but i think if they're not going back to the prehistoric setting yeah, like but if even devil if dinosaur he, is here even to if, stay, if, if even if you ignore the problems with the art for the prehistoric time. That scene was too long. Yeah. Not but I think enough. it's done now. Yeah. Well, I don't understand. Thank like, God. Reader and Montclair, I think, they had that impulse to do a homage to Kirby's run. But maybe not a, like, cause now it reads like a direct because I'm, because I'm sorry, with all the respect to Kirby. Who cares? It's Devil not, Dinosaur wasn't one of his. Yeah, it's not, it's not the new gods. It's not, uh, Omek. It's not one of his big things. It's, yeah. Something that he did. Yeah. It's like trying to do but an homage to, uh, you know, the American crime or whatever that gangster series he right. had. Based on the setup though, I think that's done because what this brings out is the fact, I mean, Moon Girl is a very different protagonist also. Yeah, for first thing, she's not an ape. Not just that she's not an ape, but like when you think about how Moon Boy used to be characterized, he's sort of like Commandy. Like, uh... you know, this prehistoric kid running around, nothing really special about him. She is her own character. Before she meets Devil Dinosaur. And that's something that I really appreciated. Definitely sticking around for more. I, I want to see where they're going with this. I, I have this sort of foreboding feeling that it's not going to survive. Well, because it reads like one of those series that is really good and we're going to be mourning it in a year. Well, but Marvel is fair about giving uh, a longer shot to series nowadays. Not Not long, long, but eight issues. I hope so. I because, so. I, you know, Squirrel sells absolutely nothing, but still got a second arc. And she's in New Avengers now, which yeah. I have to say is seeing Al Ewing trying to like handle Squirrel Girl's weirdness is really bizarre. 
I can't read New Avengers. The art is terrible. It is. The art is just... But the story is interesting so far. People made out of gum. Yeah. And and weirdly buff Young Avengers. Like, I don't know what's going on Uh, there. Moving on to our last number one. Another Vertigo launch. We're doing many of those. Well, sure, why not? Well, actually, it's not our last number one. If Vertigo is willing to give us these books, I am happy to review them. So, Red Red Thorn. This is by David Bailey and Megan Hetrick. Ongoing series, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ilum McIntosh's sister Lauren went missing in Scotland the year before she was born. Some 20-odd years later, Illa herself goes to Glasgow to try and track her down. Also, her sketches come to life. As as you do. As you do. As I think most Scot- most Scottish people, their sketches come she, to life. She's the grown-up version of Harold in the Purple Crayon? Sure. Uh, so it's really... Hmm. Okay. And she meets this boy... No, she doesn't. The boy is there, but she doesn't meet him. Um, Okay, so the thing that... This is another one of those books where the solicitations built up false expectations. And this is something that is really starting to annoy me with Vertigo specifically. Because after the Survivor's Club... I thought that was just me, right? I had just misread it. I misunderstood. I've read other reviews. Apparently, people that are not us actually enjoyed it. I don't know why, but they did. I can't explain. Okay. The art's good. Mm. At the core of this issue is a premise that could potentially be interesting, but it's buried under a whole lot of crap. You have this whole story with Illa's sketches, right? She has the ability to draw something, that drawing comes to life, wanders around, murders some teachers, as one does when you're in the mood, I suppose. Uh, but when you read the issue itself, this was a series that was solicited as dealing with Scottish mythology. I don't recognize any of that, unless the hipster she meets is some kind of nightmare that mothers warn their children about. Beware the bearded hipster. For well, he know, has you know terrible taste in music. You know what I think? I think the hipster is a person she drew. It's like the... Who, guy, the, the sister guy, or her? She. It's like the guy who feeds her immediately. I don't... I mean, if so, that's uh, Maybe really... I just remember... I think because when they talked about the first issue in the previews, they've mentioned something about she meets the man of her dreams, which is... But I'm like assuming that's the person who turns up at the end of the issue, because he mm-hmm. is someone who's been sketched. And again, like, the, the larger problem with this issue is that there is a huge pacing problem. Mm-hmm. It jumps back and forth, uh, flashbacks, and then it jumps forward. She meets the hipster at a bar, and then we jump a year forward, and they're still together... And only then, like, in the entire year, it's not clear what she's been doing with her search for her sister. But a year later, this troll thing catches up with her and says, by the way, here's a sketchbook. It's just, it's a mess. And I don't think that it's the story I thought it was going to be. Because I don't recognize any element of mythology here. This well, just seems this to be a story odd monster troll thing right but as far as we know some you know either her or her sister drew the monster and it's also there's a scene like even her powers are unclear because initially she presents it as i sketch these things they come to life but then she sketches a guard who actually exists she draws him asleep and then he falls asleep so what is this right is the person then she talks about how she and her sister have been drawing the same person and that person is chained underground. This is the the titular Red Thorn, right? Mm-hmm. Who is supposedly a mythological creature, but if they drew him, does that mean that he existed beforehand? 
It's it's just an unclear, vague mess. I have I don't, no I, idea what's going I on. I don't think it's a mess. I think it's unclear, but intentionally so. And it's one of those things will be revealed to you, which I'm not a big fan of, unless you make things really interesting from the get-go, but... Which they're not. I don't think they're uninteresting. I'm not a... I finished this this first issue, and I wasn't a big fan. I wasn't like, ooh, I need to find out what happens, but I wasn't immediately discussed, like, I don't care about these people, because there is something interesting there, I think, about the meeting between this immediate romance to this odd thing that happens to her. I think that grounds the character, because many Vertigo characters sort of need to leap immediately into the weirdness, which is their fantastic horror thing, whatever, like, we've talked about Survival's Club, we didn't know these characters in any connection other than this weird thing that happened to them. And here it's like, and here it, this is, this weird thing has happened to her, but we get enough time to know her. So the oddness is more interesting because she's more interesting. Mm. My problem is that because it's so unclear, what is her doing? What is her sister's doing? What is this, this thorn who's watching them is presumably playing some kind of part. Mm. Uh, this anecdote about her imaginary friend who comes to life and stabs the teacher doesn't seem to have anything to do with the rest of the story. Uh, you have all of these sketches, and it's not clear what happens, what doesn't happen, what's real, what's not real. And when you get to that point, it's sort of like you don't really know where to hang your hat, so to speak, right? Like, what is it about her that's interesting? The fact that she's looking for her sister, okay, most Vertigo protagonists, when they start out, they're on a quest for something. They're trying to find somebody. Could be a family member, could be whatever. I don't feel like there's enough here of her beyond that for me to keep going. Are you you're coming back for another one? I don't think so, but it's not because I hated it, it's simply because I had better things. I didn't hate it, I just... Yeah, I have better things. I was hoping for the Scottish Sandman, and I did not get it. And this lady is not Rose Walker, you know. I'm not I'm not that interested in her journey because it's not clear to me what part of this search for her sister... Like, what does that have to do with her sketches, right? What does the story about her imaginary friend have to do with this hipster? Why is the hipster important? She's with him for a year, and the comic skips over that, right? She meets him, she's dancing at a bar, a year later they're still together. And it, uh, I don't know, I don't know. The timeline's all screwed up, I, I just don't know what to make of it, and it just didn't interest me. Okay, uh, usually we would end with a trade review, but there was another number on the issue, which we were waiting for a long, long time, and it's long enough as it is to almost be a trade. And the reason we're bringing it in as a trade review is because this is the sort of initiative that needs to be given proper attention. This is a $5 comic. 72 pages. Well, 66 story pages. Yes. But yeah, that's a big chunk of pages. We're talking about Monstrous Number 1, written by Marjorie Liu, with art by Sana Takeda, which is... Mm. Where have you been? I mean, I've seen your art before, but it was never like Not this. Like this. She has... This is just a leaps and bounds. Quantum and leap in terms of her evolution. She has really, really come to her own. And a lot of it, I think, is the coloring, which is very lush and alive and sort of a toned down without being you know, depressingly dark. No, mm. it's just, it's realistic coloring. It's very odd to say. It's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Read, if not for the price and if not for anything else, just buy the issue to see a great artist, art, great artist work. But Sean, tell them, tell them what it's about. Me? Okay, I'll tell them what it's about. 
Uh, we're in an odd sort of fantasy steampunk science society. Is it steampunk? Well, some elements of design seem steampunkish, such as hmm? design. Design elements, you know, all the the technology is okay. Let's not talk about this. Okay, okay, let's. Let's talk about the plot and then no, the, talk about the reason it. I'm bringing that up is because it was described as steampunk versus kaiju. Was and, it? Yeah, and I don't have a lot of criticism for the issue itself. I actually there really, really there aren't many it. kaiju here. There are some monsters, but aren't, exactly. none of them are kaiju. No, no, no. Anyway, the, the tag is you know kaiju versus steampunk. And okay, and that's our not... protagonist is uh, Meika, who is a young woman who is apparently part of a race of monster beings, which were mechanics. In, yeah. Which were nearly hunted for extinction by the witches, mm-hmm. by a group of witches which run the human part of society, mm-hmm. and they captured these monsters and tortured them and take chunks of their body and organs to use in their magic scientifical experiments. And can I just say, Marjorie Lou's been around for a while. Mm. This is the most I've ever been impressed with her work. There's a brutality here. The, like the violence that's visited on these arcanics. These witches are basically like Dr. Mengele. They're mm. just like cutting up children and, and horrible abuses. And as far as society at large is concerned, they're not the bad guys. They're the good guys. The right. monsters are the bad guys simply because, well, they're monster people. So Micah is captured, but as we discover pretty quickly, she wanted to be captured because she has a plot. She has something to discover a secret about herself and about her family relation within the heart of the witch's complex. Mm-hmm. So this is the first issue, and it earns immensely from pacing. Oh yes! If this were, if these were the first three issues, if that, if we ended after the first twenty-two pages and then came back for another twenty-two pages, this wouldn't work so well, I think, because it is very slow reaching. The plot, there isn't much of a plot. Plot. It's basically. Girl get captured, she has a reason for it, and then she fights right. people. There's a lot of mystery also in terms of her mother and, and what happened. And the world the building is intentionally vague. You know, just throw around names and you sort of need to make a list of, mm-hmm. oh, there's the monsters and the witches and the science people. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it all has one of these crazy fantasy names which they make up simply to confuse you. In 22 pages, it would be a mess. In yeah, but in 60, 60, it works. Yeah. She has the time. She has the room to unfurl everything. She can do world building simply by letting the artist, by letting Takada draw amazing landscape after Which landscape and cityscape. She does. I mean, you did you see that shot of the city mm-hmm. when um, when Mika is is sort of being led out? It's just this gorgeous vista. Uh, coloring, you know what? Coloring wise, it kind of remind me when he talked about from under mount, not from under mountains, arc light. Yep. There is something in the design sense from Amano, art, from, like, like Yoshitaka Amano. Yeah. Which is good, you know, we need more of this. Stunning. Absolutely amazing. And you have the different designs for the different sub-races of Arcanix, I guess? Yes, and the various clothes that the people in the city use. It's all very well thought out. No, nothing is just, oh, you know, draw, draw a witch person, draw a guard. No, no, mm. no. Everybody has the proper uniforms and they look like a part of an organized society. Yeah. It's just fantastic. The the grotesque guard who torments Micah, mm-hmm. she has like the the facial expert Takeda's facial expressions here. They're they're just fantastic. Like the artwork here is top notch. Absolutely. And like and, you and said, it's Lou is really doing a good story here too. And like you said, it's surprisingly brutal. Mm. And I think 
I don't read enough young adult novels. Well, enough. I don't want to, so I don't know what's enough. But it seems to be a trend nowadays that these things allow themselves to be much more violent in nature. I think since Ender's Game or something? Since mm-hmm. Ender Games became a thing, the child who learns through suffering, like Hunger Games, if you've actually, if the movie was uh, loyal to the book, from what I understood, it would have needed to be R-rated. Because mm-hmm. you can get in prose stuff that doesn't work in, in, Visual, but here the visuals are front and center, so you, you're confronted with the, with the idea of this is what a violent oppressive society looks like. I don't know if that's... Because in a book form you could say, oh, they took her and they tortured her, and the reader could imagine something horrible or just, you know, people no, the, beating... The, the visuals go a yeah. long but way here. It's, here they took her and they torture her, and by God, you will experience things. You will see every single gruesome, horrific detail. And really, I didn't even know Lou had this in her, because... When she was writing X-23, it was dark, but not like this. This yeah. is a whole other level. And I will say, though, in terms of its relation to young adult, I think the fact that it's image is allowing Lou to maybe go a little further than most yeah, it's not, young adults. Boo wouldn't, wouldn't touch this. Oh, God, no. No. No, not unless she toned it down 500%. Yeah. And Marvel and DC similarly, they would not go this far. They had dystopias, but never like this. It's, and, okay, it's uniquely something that is, you know, because image is so permissive, because, because it's so loose, Lou really cuts loose here, and I think it's, it's a great The effect. question is, how far can you stretch this idea? Because the bad guys here are Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. So how, f- how can you stretch this? How can you add? Because Lou at a point in interviews talk about more complexity. And here, the bad guys are so awful that her protagonist, who's also a very violent creature person, can do whatever she wants to them. And we, it's like the Frank Miller Sin City thing. Right. I like Hitman. You can do whatever you want to them and you never feel bad about it. Although. So if we're supposed to be horrified by, by her transformation into a monster and her murder spree, we're not because, well, at this point, when when she becomes violent, they deserve what's coming to them. We don't care that they suffer. I think the the differentiation there is that the people who are committing these horrors, mm-hmm. it's a specific group of people, right? It's the witch nuns, these fortune telling uh, young women who may not be that young, right? They could be immortal. I think they're whatever. She she's in her teens and they're like in their twenties, early thirties. Unless of course they're you know, they could be like the Countess Bathory thing, right? Yes. So these women specifically, right, these villains could certainly be the Nazi amalgam. I don't know though if there's an indictment against regular society because we haven't seen that yet. We don't know what's really going on here. So I think there is some ambiguity there and that there's a little bit of gray areas that might explain what's going on because we don't really know what's happening in terms of Micah's looking for the pieces of this mask and she encounters the witch and the witch's mother and the witch's mother knew her mother and there's this whole... There are all of these references to past events that presumably Lou will reveal going forward. And that's great. There's, I think you're right. There's, uh, this short story by Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, the ones who walk away from, uh, Omalis? Omelas. Omelas. Okay. Do you remember, which is about society in which everything is perfect and good, and people have to confront the price that they pay for it, which is the 
pain of one orphan, was it? I think so. Yeah, like one tortured orphan. Is it worth your happiness? Yeah. And some, and most people say, but some walk away. So the question is, will we see something like this? Are the people in the society at large here in the human society, do they know about it? Do they care about it? Or are they all for it? Are they, yeah. Well, that the- seems to be the witch's justification mm-hmm. in the sense that they are using the, they're doing these horrible things, like they're amputating limbs, they're doing horrible stuff, but they seem to think that there's some kind of noble purpose behind it. Jesus, this is just beautiful. And whether or not that's true and what the connection is to, right, kaiju and what Micah can do and what her mother did to her. There's so much stuff here that's interesting because, like you've said, there's a lot that we don't know, but unlike, say, Red Thorn, there's a lot we want to know. That's the key. That is the key difference. Red Thorn doesn't present its world. I get, maybe they just don't have the space. That's yeah. understandable, right? It's 22 pages. Also, they don't have Takada. That's true, too. Hetrick is good. <gasps> Hetrick is good. She's not this good, right? No. At least right now. She's not. But also, I don't think that the, that Hetrick's art is the stumbling block so much as it is the script's inability to present Ilsa Illa, sorry, in the same way that Micah is presented mm-hmm. here, right? Like, you really have a lot of time to get to understand Micah, to see her past, to see her present. The big the big question is, I think, can the creative team keep this up with more limited space? Because, okay, we you had 66 pages here. You have a lot of space. What will you do when you're back to, I don't know, 20, 30 pages? Well, I think that <clears throat> that might have been the point... Of the 66th page release in the first place. Yeah. What they needed to do, because we've often said about a lot of image number ones in the recent year or two years, we've said the problem is that the number one tends to stop at the point before we've been hooked. Like, there's clearly some kind of premise, there's some kind of potential. Instead of stopping at the end of the episode, they tend to stop at the end of the commercial first, first break. First commercial break. Exactly. You coined that and you were absolutely right. Here, I think, having achieved, this is really sort of a pilot episode, right? This is episode one. Now, if the following issues are shorter, that's fine because we have enough reason to be hooked. We have you, enough you already to be care. Yeah, you don't. Need I, to, I want you to no know. longer need to be convinced to care about the characters in the setting. You already care. Now you exactly. just want to develop it further. If the pacing slows down now. That's okay because in the space of these sixty-six pages, Lou has already had enough time to set up the backstory. She sets up the current conflict. She sets up the presence of this giant monster thing, which is apparently relevant to the story. We don't know how. We don't know why. We have an adversary. We have the presence of this uh, this lilium, which is like arcanic kryptonite, apparently. We have the all of these different threads. So if she slows down now in 22 pages and she only does a little bit, that's okay. Because the first issue here gives us enough to really jump into it. Okay. And I am here for the entire duration of the series. Fair is fair. Are you coming back for more? I'm coming back for more, yeah. This this one looks promising. So this was Monsters number one, best of the week? I would say so. Yeah, best, best of the week. But, well, two weeks now. Yeah, and I'll give Moon Girl credit as like the second place because um, unlike Illa in Redthorn and certainly unlike anybody in DK3, I actually like Lunella as well, a new character. Well, actually, since Carrie Kelly is a star of Batgirl, uh, Bat- Batman, it's the rare week in which... All our heroes are female heroes? They are! Isn't that nice? We didn't aim for it. No, that's the sort of thing that just happens by accident. And when it does happen by accident, isn't that great? Sometimes good for you comics. You see, Grant Morrison? People can do female protagonists. Well, and just it's... doing it now! Well, where was he before is what I want to know. It's In like, Scotland. It's like Janet Jackson used to say, What have you done for me lately? 
So, this was the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time, bon appetit.